Who would have believed that in your hour of need, you would turn to us? Not me. Because I mean, we robbed you. Do you remember? That's us. Welcome, everyone, to episode 14 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. That's right, you're stuck with me as your host today, Scott Shelton, but as always, I'm joined by my ride-or-die co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing today? With all the knockout games over the last week and a half, have you gotten enough World Cup? Yeah, I, I certainly have, and I, I have to admit, I was uh, shocked by yesterday's Russia loss because I thought that the fix was definitely in. Um, after they scored in the 115th minute, I thought, well, obviously there are greater forces at work here than simply the game of soccer, and uh, Russia is going to be is going to be going all the way in this. Um, but uh, but they couldn't pull it out in the penalty shootout, um, and now we are left with. Uh, with France, Belgium, England, and Croatia. Uh, and I have to say, like, having no rooting interest in this with the, the U.S. not even being in it, I've sort of been, like, living vicariously through my friends who, like, are my, my international friends. Um, so, like, I was I was hoping that Mexico would do well for a couple of my friends, and now I have a friend who's France. So I think I'm going to be gonna be going for France to win it. Um, but, you know, it's, it's definitely a, a very unlikely semifinals i mean maybe you could have predicted france and belgium but i don't think anyone saw the what happened on the right side of the bracket coming yeah i think that's that's definitely fair to say the stars have aligned for everyone in the bottom portion of the draw and england and croatia are the ones who have who have reaped reaped the benefits of it i suppose yeah i mean england uh they could they could undo a lot of years of misery if they were to somehow win this but I think if they if they manage to make it to the final, whoever they're faced up against is going to be a formidable opponent, even if one of those teams is managed by Roberto Martinez. Yeah, and you know I, I like you have no no dog in the fight other than my uh, beloved Kevin De Bruyne for Belgium. So oh, uh, there you go. Yeah, that's that's who I'm going with uh, for now. But even then, I I don't think I'd be too torn up if they if France beat them. But we'll see. Yeah. All right. Well, we are covering two more movies today, both of which certainly fall under the big summer box office release category. And to get us started, why don't we go ahead and bury the hatchet on what sure will surely be your favorite movie of the year, Scott, uh, come awards season time. And that is, of course, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. So, directed by J.A. Bayona and releasing two weeks ago now, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom has already managed to surpass a billion at the global box office. As impressive as that absolutely is, it still hasn't come close to catching the, the $1.7 billion of its predecessor, so we'll see how much more ground it makes up over the next few weeks, especially with there aren't that many big releases coming out over the next few weeks, so it can probably still rack up uh, significantly more money, and we'll see how far it goes and if it can catch it, but it, it seems unlikely. Uh, we'll see. But speaking of, of the predecessor, Fallen Kingdom picks up three years after the events of the original Jurassic World that left Island Nublar abandoned by humans, uh, the volcano on the island has now restarted and become active again, endangering the lives of all the dinosaurs residing on it. Uh, though the U.S. government decides not to take action to save the dinosaurs from re-extinction, aging billionaire philanthropist and former business partner to John Hammond from the original Jurassic Park movie, uh, Sir Benjamin Lockwood, played by James Cromwell, through his ambitious assistant Eli Mills, 
played by Rafe Spall, enlists the help of the two main characters from the previous film, Jurassic World's former operations manager, Claire Deering, played by Bryce Dallas Howard, and Navy vet and Velociraptor trainer, what a title, Owen Grady, played by Starman Chris Pratt, to, to help save the dinosaurs, to, to rescue them from Island Nublar and move them to a new haven called simply the Sanctuary, which is a piece of land slash island owned by the estate of Benjamin Lockwood. So the rest of the movie follows the events of the rescue party before, during, and after their attempt to rescue the dinosaurs on Isla Nublar, and I think that should be good enough to get our conversation started. Scott, I'm sure you know that I watched for the first time the original Jurassic Park and then the Jurassic World movie from 2015 in preparation for seeing this film, as I was a complete novice when it came to this franchise before now. I haven't read the book either, or at least, I mean, I haven't read any of the books. I don't know. I assume there's multiple books, but maybe there's only one. I don't know. I think there's two. There's The Lost World and there's Jurassic Park. Got it. Well, I haven't read either of them, even though I am a fan of Michael Crichton. But because of because of the freshness of these two movies, I watched them literally you know a week before I saw Jurassic uh, World Fallen Kingdom. I think I might have a slightly different experience than you did watching this because they were still, like I just said, really fresh, and I kind of directly compared this movie to both its predecessor and the original. So before I dive too deeply into my own thoughts, I'd love to start with yours. Yeah, well... <laughs> Here's what I'll say. You know, here on this podcast, we're professionals, and we uh, sometimes we have to suck it up and go see movies uh, that maybe we wouldn't otherwise see if uh, if it weren't for this podcast. Um, and I have to say that this is probably the prime example of that for me um, thus far into the run of this show. Um, you can definitely speak to the fact that literally months in advance of this movie, I was asking you, do we really have to see this? Like, is there anything else that we can possibly schedule for this weekend so that we don't have to see Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom? Um, and that's because, like, I hated the last one. Um, and I have, ha- I mean, I saw it right when it came out and obviously haven't seen it again. So, you know, if I say something incorrectly about the, the first one, feel free to correct me. But I'm just not a fan of these movies in general. I mean, I think the original Jurassic Park is a good movie. I don't think it's like some people really swear by it. Um, it's like one of Spielberg's best movies, and I don't think that that's Wait, true at all. Wait, is that true? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people love this movie, uh, the first one, okay. Jurassic Park. Interesting. Um, yeah, and like I said, you know, I think it's fine. I think it's good. Um, but one was enough. Um, and uh, by that logic, certainly five is way more than enough. Um, and I, I mean, I do like the book by Michael Crichton. That's probably the best thing in the Jurassic, uh, Jurassic Park universe for me. Um, but I mean, you know, I think that this premise had been stretched th- too thin already going into Jurassic World, and Jurassic World did not help it at all. Um, it was dumb. It had characters making like ridiculous decisions. Um, it had huge logical gaps in it, um, and it just felt really repetitive, I guess. And I mean, those I mean, are I mean, the, the plot same. is literally, I mean, okay, sure, they changed some of like the superficial <laughs> details, but like yeah. Jurassic World is literally all right. Two kids come to an island where they probably mm-hmm. shouldn't be left alone in, and then need to be rescued <laughs> by these like I don't know mirror image characters of you know it's Chris Pratt and. <laughs> And Bryce Dallas Howard yeah. in, in the new movies and in the old movies, it was you know Laura Sam Dern. Neal and Laura Dern. Sam yeah. Neal and Laura Dern. But sorry, continue. It's just like ridiculous how much it mirrored it. Yeah, but I, I mean, unfortunately, I have pretty much the exact same criticisms for this movie. Um, I think that you know I had low expectations going into it, and 
you know, maybe if you pointed a gun to my head, I would say that it was better than the first one. Oh, okay. You'd say it's better than the first one. I'd... Well, but that in no way is a praise of this movie at all because um, <laughs> it's a backhanded even compliment. Ready, even Ready Player One was better than the first one. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that this movie is, for as much action as there is, it is like shockingly boring. Like it, it is incredible how boring it is for how much action is going on in this movie. Um, I think that it again, it's super repetitive. Um, it borrows like so many things from past Jurassic Park movies and like I, this, this is just a small thing like a more specific thing but like there is something that happens in this movie and I, I literally started counting because it was happening so often six times six times in this movie we have uh, this like recurring trope of where a character will have like a narrow escape from the dinosaurs and then they'll turn to like the camera or to the other characters and they'll, you know, they'll either breathe a sigh of relief or something or like make a little quip about, oh, well, that was a close one. And then as they're doing that, the dinosaur comes up and like eats them or does something to them. I mean, it literally happened six times. Like I, I was so sick of it. Um, by the second time, I mean, it's ridiculous how repetitive it is. And, and I mean, then there's, then there's the larger problem of, well, first of all, the characters aren't interesting. And second of all, the like political message that they're trying to tout with this movie, like it is completely lost and makes no sense. And it's just completely illogical in the context of this movie and in the context of a movie involving dinosaurs. And I'm sure that that's something we'll talk more about. Um, but to me, it just was utterly ridiculous that, first of all, they were trying to have a political message in this movie at all. Um, and second of all, just the way that it's handled is just really poor. Um, so yeah, I, I have to say, I don't have any good things to say about it. Um, if I, if I were to say one, one area where I think it improves on the first movie, um, probably Bryce Dallas Howard's character, um, because I think that in the first movie, her character was literally just so insufferable and like literally just stomped around the whole time and like her dress and heels, like not knowing what to do and just waiting for Chris Pratt to come and rescue her. Um, and so fortunately I think in this movie they do a little bit more to like make her a more proactive, like independent character. Um, but those are very small steps forward. Uh, and, they are probably the only steps forward, uh, only discernible steps forward in this movie from the last one. Uh, so yeah, I, I can't say that, uh, that this movie uh, superseded my expectations, sadly enough. Got it. Yeah, I think that for for me, this uh, just to not bury the lead whatsoever. I think this movie is worse than the first one for me. I I, okay. I don't love I don't love the first one. Um, I'm definitely not as negative as you. I thought the visuals in the first one were truly stunning. Like it, it's some it's some incredible. CGI, incredible visuals. I thought the score was really good in the first one, personally. Um, and I also, as boring as as the characters and the nonsensical the plot is sometimes, I, I thought it, at least at some points, like made a little bit of sense. I don't know if I can say that about this film. And I know that we texted back and forth about it a little bit after I saw it, that it's just like how... And I think that you've already talked about this, but like, how can these characters continue to make these same dumb decisions? And yeah. like, what what logic are they even using to make these uh, any of these decisions to begin with? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. The characters, I, I mean, I personally just found 
like I was like fine with Chris Pratt's character in the first one. Like it wasn't exciting. I wasn't interested in him. Like I didn't think he was. I mean, he was given literally nothing to work with, in my opinion. And I think he was given somehow even less in this film. Like he, I was just so tired of every character in this film, with like one exception, by the end of it. And that's just unfortunate because I think that this franchise could be really good. I really believe that. And I and I think and I mean I like I when I watched the original Jurassic Park movie about a week and a half ago now, like I really enjoyed it. Like it's not a it's not, I wouldn't say it's like anywhere near like best movies of all time, let alone I mean or even you know best Spielberg movies of all time. But still a very enjoyable movie and like if especially with the graphics of the first movie and I think the the score, you know, with a sound plot with someone who could really, you know, makes write something that made sense and write something that was more compelling and, and wasn't just like, oh, let me uh, watch the Jurassic Park, the original Jurassic Park movie over and, like, let's take some plot point notes so I can replicate them in the new movie. Yeah. Um, I think that it could be something really compelling because this franchise is ripe for something really interesting. I mean, and I think that that's, that comes from the fact that the Jurassic Park book by Michael Crichton is still an incredibly famous book, an incredibly popular book, even today. You know, I, I think what he's... He, Michael Crichton died almost 20 years ago now. Um, Has it been that long, really? I thought he died in the early 2000s, so maybe not quite yeah. 20. But, oh well, yeah. Yeah, the internet will correct me, I'm sure. But anyway, um, I, I think that it, it, it's disappointing because, and then to kind of maybe focus more on this particular movie, because I think that the visuals weren't nearly, like, weren't as good in this movie, even though, in theory, it's three years of CGI technology that has improved. I mean, I guess, the, I mean, the dinosaurs still look great, but... They they spent most of the time in this mansion that like isn't interesting as like a as like a, a setting, like half of the movie is in this in this mansion and like it was so disappointing because one of the reasons that I loved the first movie was because Isla Nublar is gorgeous like it's a gorgeous setting for a movie and they did such a, and I really do think they did a great job with it in the first, in Jurassic World, but they choose to kind of just ham fist themselves into the middle of the night in a in a, like a house for half the movie. And, like, I guess that's cool to see dinosaurs in a different setting, but, like, I'd rather just have had more of the old stuff because that was, like, one of the good things about the first movie. Yeah. Um, and I didn't think the score was nearly as good. It didn't It didn't amplify anything that the movie was doing. It was just there. I not- Like, I noticed it in a negative way, whereas in the first, in Jurassic World, I noticed it in a positive way. Um, so that, that, that was disappointing that the movie being negative in that sense. And then if you... Flip, a, flip the coin here to talk about ways that it could improve from the first movie. I just don't think it did that. Um, and, and I think that mostly aligns with what you're saying. Although, I mean, again, I'm not as negative on the first movie as you are, but it was disappointing that, like, they made zero strides to improve any of these characters with, you know, one exception being one of the new characters, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, nevertheless, I, I think... It's probably now is a good time to talk more specifically about one of the things that you mentioned that we would talk more about, and that's the the political message of this movie, the the animal rights politics of this film, which was I just really thought was I mean like it's a sub it's subtext in all of these in all the Jurassic movies I think it's hard for it not to be, but they really put it on the front and center of this. It's the first scene we see in the present day. I mean we have this weird opening scene where people are. Um, harvesting DNA of the, what the, I don't even, the 
Indominus Rex from the from Jurassic World. Right. Yeah. Uh, and and bring. And we have Jeff Goldblum at like these congressional hearings. No, right. So that's what that's what I'm going to say. So the first scene that we see in the present day is Jeff Goldblum, who I mean I don't know how many Jurassic movies he's been in, but he wasn't in the previous one. Um, I think has he been in the like the the two that I haven't seen the Lost he was in, World and he was in number one and number two. Okay, which so, is stupid because he actually dies in the in the book in the first Jurassic Park book. Oh wow, interesting. I guess that makes sense. I mean, he's such a I mean he was such a compelling character actor. In, well, I know, and that's in the, the thing. first it movie. It just seems like in this movie, it seems like such a shoe, like he's so shoehorned into it. Like his his character is given nothing to do except for these two really brief scenes of like where he's monologuing at this congressional here. And it, it's so obvious that they're like, oh, people love Jeff Goldblum, like in the original series, so let's, like, have him show up and it'll be fun. Oh, that's that's fun. absolutely why. I mean, they literally, yeah. like, I was reading an article, that like, an interview with him, and he was like, yeah, like, I didn't even expect any of my scenes to make it to the final movie. I assumed that they were literally just doing it for a trailer. <laughs> yeah, because they're boring and don't add anything to the movie. <laughs> well, you're right. And what they're trying to add is, like, bringing this idea of, like, animal rights politics in, the, yeah. in that discussion in front of the Senate, literally to, like, the the forefront of your mind. And so I just want to spend not too long here, because it's really not worth talking that much about, but uh, notable enough because they tried to make it uh, part of the movie. Uh, what what did you think of, of the animal rights message of this film? I mean, I think it's just so, so poorly handled. I mean, it, it, for one thing, like, to say that, oh, we shouldn't be exploiting the dinosaurs... Well, that's exactly what these movies are doing. Like, nobody's going to see a Jurassic Park movie because they want to see the plot or the amazing characters. Like, they're going to see the dinosaurs. Like, it, it seems, like, so hypocritical for them to be like, oh, you know, we, we can't exploit the dinosaurs. We can't just use them as, like, showpieces or whatever. And then that's exactly what all of these movies are. And second of all, like... It's dinosaurs. I think like that is that is the inherently flawed thing about trying to get this animal rights message across is that we're not talking about you know some endangered species in Africa. We're talking about something that no one who has seen this movie has ever actually seen uh, or experienced like any sort of interaction with whatsoever. Um, we're talking about something that went extinct millions of years ago. Dinosaurs. Uh, so it's it's like it's impossible at least for me to like connect with these dinosaurs in any meaningful way uh and i know that you know so not everyone may, will agree with me on that um yeah i mean but, we, we talked about this i i have a soft spot for that for that t-rex yeah <laughs> when i see dinosaurs i'm thinking and like of course using the other jurassic park like movies as evidence like i'm thinking oh these are these are killer animals like you need to escape the dinosaurs not we need to protect them and, like, that's how this movie proceeds. Like, even though there's this, you know, they're talking earlier on about, oh, we have to protect the dinosaurs. Then what we get for most of the movie is the dinosaurs running around, destroying everything, killing people, um, you know, wreaking havoc as they do in every one of these movies. And then, you know, spoiler alert, I mean, I don't mind spoiling this movie because I don't think anyone should go see it. But uh, at the end of the movie, of course, we get the we get this moment where they have to decide whether they're going to set the dinosaurs free. And like, it's funny because Bryce Dallas Howard's character and like, and Chris Pratt's character, they like have basically agreed that they can't press the button to let the dinosaurs out. And I'm like, great. Finally, we're like, we're actually making progress. They're, they're going to realize that these dinosaurs shouldn't be out roaming the wild. Um, 
And then the little girl, Macy, I believe is her name, Yep. Um, just presses the button and says, they're alive, just like us. Um, which I, I no, no, really no. laugh. To be, to be really specific, just like me is what she says, which yeah, we'll talk about. Like we'll get me. into that later. Um, but just yeah. like me. I'm like, no, they've actually been extinct for millions of years. But, um, but she presses the button and lets them out. And, you know, this to me in the, in the ultimate, like, well, you haven't learned your lesson moment. Like, as soon as the dinosaurs, like, exit the garage they kill two people like they just stomp on two of uh two of like the uh military uh men i think who were like guarding the facility um and i'm like well what did you expect like this is all they've been doing for the course of five movies and honestly i would have liked it more if when the little girl pressed the button if she just said but we have to make another movie and then press the button um because i think that would have been more true to what their actual intentions are um, with letting the dinosaurs out. Like, I don't think that there's any, like, practical benefits which, like, freeing the dinosaurs provide at this point in the series um, other than maybe it makes you feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Like, yo, you've done this great thing for animals and humanity by letting the dinosaurs out. But actually you haven't because they're going to kill everyone. Um, so, I, I mean, I think it's, it's, kind of, it's almost cynical for them to, like, try to superimpose this message in there when really like it's they just want to make another movie yeah you know they really just want to set themselves up to deal with some really complex things of human dinosaur interaction in the real world in their final movie in the jurassic world trilogy you know give them the oh, benefit yeah. of the doubt scott yeah <laughs> yeah i'm I, sure that's what it is yeah i don't have anything else to add to this animal rights politics discussion i know we've kind of segued out of it and into into the ending of the movie but i think that it's I, I texted this to you after the movie, but I was like, the one the one moment in the movie that makes sense is when Bryce Dallas Howard's character goes to get Chris, like tries to convince Chris Pratt to like come to Island Nublar and rescue the dinosaurs, and she's just like, so you're just gonna let them die? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, that <laughs> yeah, makes exactly. sense. Exactly. Oh uh, yeah, I, that forgot was, I forgot that that happened. Yeah. yeah, it was very early in the movie, and he shows up the next day at the airport, so clearly. Clearly, he didn't really believe that, but um, you know, that that was the I mean, one that was the one line in the movie that I thought made a lot of sense. So, and it would be another it would be another thing if we like had multiple examples of like, oh, here's the good dinosaur, uh, like you know, to refer to the Pixar classic. Um, but like we have we have like one dinosaur who is like an ally, and the rest of them are just like beasts who are running around trampling everything and not to mention i mean this gets into the plot a little bit but like in every one of these movies it's like oh we're going to use the dinosaur's dna to make this like super like genetically engineered dinosaur that's like the most dangerous thing that has ever existed um and then in the next movie they're like no actually this one is more dangerous that we're going to make this time um and so like you know the possibilities for things to go horribly wrong again are very high like you know based on how this series has gone the next movie they're probably just going to take the dna again from one of these dinosaurs and they're going to make something even bigger than indominus rex or whatever the stupid thing was called in this movie the endoraptor um, in this movie yeah exactly it, at this point it's like it's almost like in star wars when they start pulling out the death star again it's like we you know we've seen this it's star killer like, base though scott it's star killer <laughs> base this time yeah right it's like can't you come up with something else then other than, oh, we're going to use the dinosaur's DNA to make a, you know, this awful creature. Yeah, so I think what they really need is they just need Ryan Johnson to direct the third movie, and it will get very different. 
and yeah, then all the all the fanboys will just go crazy. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I I don't I just like don't know like what like what else is worth talking about with this movie. Um, so we might as well just like briefly talk about the cast, which we've already talked a little bit about, or at least we've talked about how boring the characters are. So maybe we can try to tease apart what's bad about the characters, what's what's maybe good or bad about the acting. And of course, you have the two leads um, who you've already said. Well, you've said from the last movie that Bryce Dallas Howard was insufferable. Did did Claire's character, who played by Bryce Dallas Howard, get any better for you in this film? It, it sounded like from your kind of general thoughts that it, it did improve a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think she's given more to do in like some of the action scenes. Like she takes more of a she takes charge more than she did in the first movie. Like I said, I think in a, a lot in the first movie, it was just Chris Pratt. It was just her waiting around for Chris Pratt to rescue her. And that was one of the things which I hated about the characters in the first movie. Because it, it was like, here's here's Bryce Dallas Howard's character, who's like completely incompetent and can't do anything right. Um, and then here's Chris Pratt's character, who is like, you know, the perfect alpha male who does the, like, the exact right thing and always shows up at the right time and, like, never does anything wrong in the first movie. Uh, and it's, it was just, like, such a stark contrast uh, between the characters and, like, very unfair to Dallas, Bryce Dallas Howard, because I think she's a very talented actress, uh, that she was sidled with such a insufferable role. Uh, so, you know, I think that they do give her, you know, some more to do. Like, you know, we see she's running this foundation, corporation, whatever it is, at the beginning of the movie, and, like, seems to, you know, seems to be leading it, um, leading it well, and, like, you know, she's taking charge. Um, so I think that they do a little bit more with that. Um, as for Chris Pratt's character, you know, I'm kind of with you. He doesn't interest me at all. I mean, I feel like it's really just Chris Pratt playing Chris Pratt again, but without the, like, without really, like, the, lore, like, backstory that, you know, like, let's say Star-Lord has. Um, yeah, it's so like, it's so I, interesting to hear that now, just to, like, pause and second on Chris Pratt, to hear someone yeah. say Chris Pratt playing Chris Pratt, because, I mean, he's someone who is, became famous for a role in Parks and Rec, like and and now he's synonymous. And a very different role for what he's become famous for now. Which like, is exactly what I'm a, saying. He was a doofus on in on Parks and Rec. No, that that, that was exactly my point. It's so interesting to, yeah. for him to become famous doing something, and then now his like the persona of his like acting ability has changed so much. Yeah. I mean, because obviously now he's way more famous for being Star Lord to be Peter Quill, uh, and then also I mean this franchise as well to be Owen Grady. Yeah, I mean, this character is just so much less interesting to me. Like, there's, you know, there's no backstory. Like, there's no... There, there's literally no backstory. It's not even that the backstory is bad. Like, the backstory just doesn't exist. Yeah, there's no reason why we should care about this character other than it's Chris Pratt and he has charisma. But... He wants to live in a trailer and build a house on some mountain. I don't know. Whatever that weird well, part was. Well, what do you do? He, he yeah. can do that if it means we don't get another one of these movies. Well, I think you're going to be out of luck on this one, bud. Yeah, I, but hopefully in two years' time, I'm going to go ahead and start my campaign right now begging you for us to not review the next one of these movies two years from now, whenever, whenever it comes you up. You know, it could be our really episode sure 100. It could be our episode 100, you know? In which case, we just have to do, you know, we have to do a retrospective and look back on the previous 99 episodes and not review any new movies at all because that's what <laughs> you do on the 100th episode. That, that feels right. That feels right. You know, yeah. with two to three, I mean, this movie was... Three years from the first one, so three years from now, like you know, if you start now, you might be able to convince me. But we do have a little bit more I do want to talk about before we wrap up this episode. Okay. And sorry, yeah. For, first, I'd like to talk a little bit about Rafe Spall, who plays Eli Mills, um, who's the ambitious assistant to James Cromwell's Ben Lockwood. I want to I want to talk a little bit about these two characters 
and then maybe move on briefly to the plot and in particular talk about Macy. Um, but yeah, what did, what did you think of the quote unquote, you know, I guess we've already talked spoilers, but the quote unquote villain of this movie, uh, being Eli Mills. Uh, not interesting at all. Um, I guess but he has ambition. No... That's his motivation. Yeah. He wants to be, be rich. I don't know. Well, exactly. You're, yeah. you're, not, you're pointing to the problem there. Like, you know, th- there's nothing original about this character. There's nothing like unique about his motivation. Um, and you know, he, he left no impact on me whatsoever. Um, like, I, you know, I never thought, like, I was never, like, worried that our heroes were not going to get away with it. Like, there was no suspense whatsoever. Um, and, you know, I, as for James Cromwell, like, he's obviously a very esteemed actor. Um, I remember him from 24. He was on 24, right? He, yeah. He played Jack Bauer's hey, dad on 24, didn't he? Okay, yes, I, I believe you're right. Yeah. I, all I can remember him from is Babe, but... Um, <laughs> Where he played the farmer. Yeah, there. that's but, true. Um, that's true. But his character is basically just the stand-in for like Richard Attenborough's character in Jurassic Park. Uh-huh. Um, but not as not as interesting, unfortunately, for him. Um, you know, there's maybe a, a you know a few good moments between him and Macy, um, his granddaughter. But you know, I again, this is one of the major problems. No good villain in the movie and you know they're like there are random other like quote-unquote villains as well that show up like there's this asian doctor who bd wong like, plays like, yeah that he's working with to develop the doctor you know, whatever the the thing the new dinosaur is called it's it's the same um, doctor from all the jurassic park movies right i didn't even pick up on that but you might oh right. yeah i mean it's um, definitely the same one from jurassic world and i'm Almost positive okay, B.D. Wong okay. plays... Well, that would make sense, because he just shows up, and I, I was like, who is this guy? Um, yeah, I'm also pretty sure it's the doc... I'm also almost positive it's also the geneticist from Jurassic Park, the original one. Okay, you you may be right. That would that would make a little bit more sense. But then you also have, like, this general... I don't even know who played him, but, like, he's also kind of a nefarious character. Um, so it's... it's there's just a lack of focus when it came to, like, the villains in this movie... Um, they just like threw three or four at you, but none of them were really like, uh, you know, original. None of them stood out whatsoever. Did, um, did you not so, like, uh, Toby Jones as Gunner Eversall, like the auctioneer or oh, whatever? Yeah, I, see, there's another one. I totally forgot about him too. Um, you know, it was kind of an interesting part, I guess, but. Yeah. And also it's you, t- you Ted know, Levine didn't, didn't plays the military right. guy. That's right. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, that's the point. Like instead of like focusing in on one villain, you have like four. But they all yeah. suck. <laughs> exactly. None of them are interesting. Uh, but, but, like, I mean, I don't think Toby Jones' character would ever have really been interesting. He's just, like, this high-end auctioneer who wants to make yeah. a billion dollars just like Eli Mills does. I mean, to be honest, like, Eli, Eli Mills has the most potential to be interesting. But it's just, like, you've worked for this family for, like, I don't know. It seemed like a really long period of time. And you just, like, don't care about them at all. Like that's that's impressive to me. Like they they seem like they've treated you well. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean the way, the way he treats the little girl is like pretty repulsive. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, we we already talked spoilers. Like he kills Ben Lockwood in the movie, yeah. so it's it's just cra- like I don't understand his motivations at all. Like he just wants to make a lot of money, but like he has a lot of money. He's in charge of the Lockwood estate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't understand. Yeah, I, mean, I, th- I think the idea is he wants to 
he wants to sell the dinosaurs, right? Yeah, like, he, he wants to he sell wants the dinosaurs to... to make more money. Yeah. Presumably. I mean, I don't well, know I other... Mean, I, I, th- I think that's why he, he does what he does, because he wants to take the, you know, the company in a different direction, I guess. But, I mean, you know, it's not fleshed out at all. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I get what he wants to do. I just don't understand why he wants to do it. Yeah, yeah. Like, it just seems entirely money. unnecessary. Yeah, I got you. He's just a horrible person, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> like, Yeah. Uh, anyway... I think that that probably that probably that probably does it <laughs> for the characters. Um, so we've already talked about. I mean, okay. So I'll, I'll I'll give a nice little shining spot here for the plot. I think that most of it doesn't make much sense, but I did like that we got to spend about half an hour on Island Nublar again. Again, like I think the the CGI and visuals of that island are very impressive. Some of the some of the best out there, I think, actually. Um, yeah. Go ahead. I mean, yeah, like. Here's my thing about the visuals is like I've just come to expect that the visuals will be good. Like mm-hmm. you know, they, this is an f- incredibly expensive movie. I mean, everyone knows the Jurassic Park franchise, so you know, I, I really had no doubts that with the kind of money that they spent on this movie, that we would have really good CGI. But you know, so so what I was looking for is you know, do they do use CGI in like an interesting way, like they do in spoiler art, the second movie we're going to talk about, um, or like. Do we at least have characters that I care about what is happening to them in these big CGI action sequences? And the answer was a big no. So, like, while yep. the visuals are good, I mean, technically very good, like, that to me didn't add anything to the movie because I was expecting that and mm-hmm. I was still bored when they were happening. So. Yeah, and and to the extent that I was talking about earlier, I think that's that, that sums up perfectly why the visuals impacted me less in this film than it did in the original Jurassic World movie. Because I think that they don't do very much with the visuals. They don't do anything new with it. I mean, basically what I was trying to say earlier is that, like, if they were going to do nothing with the movie either way, I just would have preferred more of Isla Nublar than, like, getting this mansion. Right. (laughs) But, uh, so, it it was, like, one of the few moving moments in this film was, I like, I know that you're going to disagree with me here, but was, like watching them watch the like as they sail off the island with in in like the huge i guess like barge that they're on like watching the island go up in flames and like watching like is it a brachiosaurus like through the smoke kind of just die like that that actually was kind of a moving moment it was like the only time in the movie i felt anything and a lot of it was just like also like the fact that they were watching like they had to watch that was, like, part of the movie moment. So, it was like, it wasn't even necessarily that the dinosaur was dying, although that, to some people that's definitely going to be a really moving experience. It was more just, like, watching Bryce Dallas Howard, who has, like, the Protect the Dinosaurs group or whatever it's called, um, like, have to watch these, like, dinosaurs die in front of her. It was, like, that was, that was tough. That was tough for her. Yeah, if you say so. Yeah, if I say so. Anyway, okay, so, like, the, the two other points of the plot, we've already talked about the Indoraptor, how it's just like oh like I- I'm sure they just sat in a room for a year. Like, make another Death Star, yeah. Yeah, well, th- I'm sure like part of like the movie making process for this was them sitting in a room for a year. Okay, like one, what can we do to improve on the Indominus Rex? There's and two, how can we franchise. how can we name it? Also, like I I just can't believe they could come up with a better name than Indoraptor. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that doesn't matter. Uh, the the last plot point I want to talk about. Um, was Macy. So we talked a little you talked a little bit about the, like the final scene with her releasing the dinosaurs from the hydrogen chloride infested um ba- sub basement of the mansion. So basically what happens is is during the final I mean it's not even really a final fight, but 
during during kind of the the culmination culmination of the conflict, um, there's a rupture in a hydrogen chloride tank and it starts spreading through the basement. It's gonna kill all the dinosaurs uh, if they don't let them out. And so Bryce, as you mentioned already, Bryce Dallas Howard's really close to pressing the button to the uh, to the you know to the to freeing them from the basement, putting them out in the wild. And Chris Pratt's like, "Are you sure you want to do that? You can't take it back." She decides not to, but then as they like embrace or like whatever it was, or as they're about to leave, Macy, the daughter of Ben or granddaughter of Benjamin Lockwood, uh, it presses the button and says, "No, they're free or they're alive, like me." And the reason, and the reason that this is that that she says like me is because we find out over the course of the movie that she's actually a clone of Benjamin Lockwood's daughter who died in a car accident and that's the which is just really weird yeah and and the and the and Ben Lockwood cloning his daughter is the reason why he and John Hammond had a falling out uh and and weren't business partners after the first Jurassic Park movie so there's this weird point in the movie where all of a sudden you're now talking about cloning humans and they just don't do anything with it they just throw it out there and they're like here Think about this. See ya. <laughs> like what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's extremely strange. I mean, I guess they were trying to, you know, make us feel some sympathy for this character. And I mean, I will say that you know, I cared about the Macy character. Yeah, so slightly, slightly more than any of the other characters. She's the she's the one exception that I was talking about earlier. Like the characters I didn't care about. Like she's the one character that I actually cared a little bit about. Yeah, but movie. at the same time, you know, we get to the end, and it's like, here we go, another generation of people who are going to be making this same stupid decision to let the dinosaurs free. And I just wanted to, like, look at Chris Pratt and, and Bryce Dallas Howard's character and be like, you did this, like, this is you and your bleeding hearts, like, have made, uh, you know, have basically doomed another generation to repeat history again and again. Yeah, I I just don't understand the whole the whole th- theme of cloning humans, like why it's in this movie. Yeah, yeah. If you're gonna like drop something like that, you, I think like you are obligated to explore it. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess, I guess you know the only reason is, like you say at the end when she she has that moment, like maybe it gives us a reason why she would want to free the dinosaurs besides just oh animal activism. You know, because she maybe she feels like she has a personal connection to, like the yeah. dinosaurs, because they're cloned in the same way that she was. I mean, that's certainly I think what they want you. I mean, that's certainly what they're trying to do. Otherwise, they, there's like no reason to make that to have that line the yeah, way it yeah. is. I just like you also don't need it. Like you don't yeah. like she's a ten year old girl. Like she doesn't need a reason to want to free the dinosaurs. Like I could totally un- like I don't understand her like motivations for freeing the dinosaurs any better than if she was just like, I want them to be free. I'm 10 years old and have, like, no actual, co- like, logical cognitive ability to, like, understand that this is a terrible decision. Like, Sorry, uh, sorry to our 10-year-old listeners out there. Yeah. But it's just also, like, if you were 10-year-old listening to this podcast, like, why did you go see this movie? It's, <laughs> it's rated PG-13, right? So don't go see it. Um, oh, true, yeah. Um, but, no, but the point is just, like, it's not a better motivation for her to be like, oh, they're cloned like I am, then it's just like, oh, like, I want these dinosaurs to be alive because 
they deserve to be alive. Like, I can see any 10-year-old yeah. saying that, and it's like, fine, I get it. It doesn't add anything to the movie. I mean, yeah, I, I definitely agree. Cool. Well, I, the last thing I have here on our, like, our little, like, rundown of things to talk about is just, like, the Jurassic franchise as a whole. Like, I, I suspect that you're going to say why we don't need another movie. Uh, but I'll let you say it one more time. <laughs> well, to use, like, a, I mean, this is probably, like, a Rick Riley joke, but, like, this franchise is now as extinct as the dinosaurs themselves. Um, Which is just not true, not, though, because it's, like, it's making over a billion at the box office. Well, I, I mean, that, that's the sad thing, I'm saying. But I, I mean in terms of the quality of the movies. Um, like, one was enough. Um, I honestly don't see how they're they're going to do anything interesting with the next movie in this series. And, like, yeah, you know, I will say, like, I did have a slightly higher expectations because we have Jay Bayona who's directing, and, like, he has done some decent stuff in the past, like, certainly compared to Colin Trevorrow, who directed the first one. Like, I thought, well, okay, maybe this one actually won't be as shoddily made. But, like, I think what we've seen is that even a director who, you know, someone knows what they're doing just can't save the stupidity like that has overcome this franchise. I think I think so, we should really emphasize. I mean, like I'm I'm totally willing to like go in on Colin Trevorrow at this point. Like he still wrote this movie, and I think a good director can't save Colin Trevorrow from his own stupidity and inability to make movies. That's true. Um, so you know, unless the next movie is like directed by Richard Linklater and is like a coming of age story about a dinosaur, um, it's just gonna and, be blue. W- in West Texas, then um, I probably Texas. will not be interested in seeing this movie. Um, I wonder how many of our but, listeners got that deep cut. Yeah, uh, hopefully more of them uh, have seen Days to Confuse than uh, you're giving them credit for, but we'll see. We'll see. All right, yeah. Like I said, maybe Ryan Johnson. Well, I mean, we know Colin, we know Colin Trevorrow is directing the, the third one. Am I right? Oh, he is? Oh, I don't know. Maybe I'm making oh, that up. Okay, well, then never mind. I have no hope. <laughs> well, I'll—I'm pretty sure that Colin Trevorrow is directing the third—the the third film in this trilogy. We can hope that I'm wrong about that. But yeah, no, this this, this franchise needs life support desperately. Uh, anyway, I think that that should just about. Oh no, sorry, we actually have to put a score on this. And I, I also, I guess we'll have to pick a favorite moment. I was just completely ready to end this discussion, but we have to do our wrap up. Uh, fa- favorite moment from. Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Uh, there was one part I liked where the dinosaur licked Chris Pratt's face. Oh, yeah, that's right. It Is was like a the... three-second part of the movie, but that was probably my favorite moment. Yeah. It was, it was, a, it was a very, like, evocative moment, and, like, it, it made a good use of the CGI, I thought. That was, that a, was it. That was a real lick right there. I, I'd yeah. forgotten about that scene. <laughs> I could feel it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally immersed. Um, yeah. I think that, for me... Uh, as as much as it resonates with your point too that they you let the dinosaurs out and they immediately go kill everything, um, I I I've already mentioned that I love the T Rex in in this franchise now and and so the last moment where the T Rex I think eats Eli Mills is is a really gratifying moment for me because he is a really terrible person. But yeah, but then there's that moment where he's like he's hopping away or whatever, <laughs> and like as they're saying goodbye to him and he turns around. And, like, looks back at them, you know, like, as if to say goodbye. And I was just like, this is so stupid. This is so cheesy. (laughs) Yep. Sounds about right. Uh, Sounds about right. All right. Let's, 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 let's slap a score on this one. It's going to be, well, if you're, if you're, if it's true to your word, it's going to be 
less than 3.5, which is what you rated Ready Player One. So where, where are you falling on this one? 2.5. 2.5. All right. And, that's, uh, and again, that's higher than I probably would have rated the first one. <laughs> is it actually? Wow. All I right. mean, you know, granted, I haven't seen it in several years, but I was not at all taken with the first one. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Uh, 3.5 for me. So a little bit higher than you, but nothing to write home about. <laughs> oh, man. You're going to be counting this one in Oscar season. <laughs> yeah, you know it, man. 3.5 out of 4. Um, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, 3.5 out of 10. And uh, let's not talk about this movie anymore. I think that should just Never about again. do it. Uh, let's take a short break. When we return, we'll be discussing an even more recent release and the latest installment in the MCU, Ant-Man and the Wasp. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Turning from dinosaurs now to superheroes, it's time for us to discuss Ant-Man and the Wasp. Doubling both as a follow-up to 2015's Ant-Man, as well as a movie running somewhat in parallel with the events of Avengers Infinity War, Ant-Man and the Wasp sees director Peyton Reed return to the director's chair as events pick up three years after the events of the first Ant-Man movie. Paul Rudd's Scott Lang slash Ant-Man uh, because of the aftermath of the events of Captain America Civil War, is nearing the end of his two-year house arrest sentence. Though, in the interim, he has become estranged from his former, former partner, Hope Van Dyne, played by Evangeline Lilly, and mentor Hank Pym, uh, played by Michael Douglas, the original Ant-Man from the 70s and 80s. And after a brief flashback to remind us how Hope's mother and Hank's wife, Janet Van Dyne, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, vanished... Uh, way back in, I, I don't know the exact date, but many years before when Hope was a child, uh, Lang quickly finds himself wrapped back up in being Ant-Man and helping both Hank and Hope try to find Janet in the quantum realm. As Hank and Hope assemble a machine that will let them travel through the quantum realm to find Janet, they are met with several obstacles. The FBI, who are still on the hunt for both Hank and Hope from their uh, elusive nature at post-Captain uh, America Civil War, uh, a low-level black market... A dealer, Walton, played by Walton Goggins, who wants to sell the quantum technology for money, and then thirdly, an unstable woman, played by Hannah John Kamen, known only as Ghost, who can phase through physical objects. And all three of these, uh, the team must keep at bay if they are going to be reunited with Janet. All right, Scott, let's start with you. Uh, I, I was just asking you off air, and I was told you that I was going to ask you this first, but I wasn't sure whether you'd seen the original Ant-Man movie because I know that you're you're not someone who sees every single uh, superhero movie that comes out. And I think that between... It, it's kind of sandwiched between, I think, Age of Ultron and Captain America Civil War. So it's, it's one of those that can easily be missed. But what did you think of Ant-Man and the Wasp? And ha- have you seen... Did, did you have the context of the original Ant-Man movie? Uh, I did not. I did not. I had not seen the original Ant-Man, and I still have not seen the original Ant-Man. Um, I, I think kind of because of what you were just alluding to, um, I think it was kind of going through, it kind of came out during the time when I was having a little bit of Marvel fatigue, maybe. Um, so I thought, well, I'll skip this one. I don't really know anything about Ant-Man, um, so I'm not really invested in seeing this character on screen or anything. Um, and just never really caught up with it, even though I did hear good things about it. Um, however, you know, going into this movie, I did read the plot summary, at least, for, for Ant-Man, um, just so I you know, would have a, 
decent idea of what was going to be going on. And I have seen Civil War, so um, I kind of knew that, um, that that backdrop to it. Um, and, you, you know, going into this movie, like, this is the fourth Marvel movie, I believe, to come out this year. Um, and the third one, I guess that you would say, was as part of the MCU. Like, I don't guess you would really count Deadpool 2 as part of the MCU, would you? No, it, it's not. It's not part of the okay. MCU. Yeah, well, so this is, anyway, this is the fourth Marvel movie. Uh, we're at the point where only 90s kids will remember when Marvel would release only two movies a year. But, um, <laughs> but so, I, you know, I was kind of like, okay, I mean, you know, here we go again. Here's another Marvel movie. Like, don't really know much about these characters. I, like, I'm not that invested. Um, you know, even though I liked, I, I enjoyed all three of the other Marvel movies this year, I think I gave all of them a score of 8.0 or higher. Um that you know, right. I wasn't like I still wasn't thrilled going into this movie. Um, like uh, you know, I wasn't I wasn't like super excited to see it. Um, but with that being said, I had a good time with this movie. I don't think it um, measures up to the other three Marvel movies that have come out this year. Um, like I don't think it is it quite as much fun as Deadpool two, and I don't think that it has like the intensity. Um, of Black Panther or Avengers Infinity War. Um, but I think that I, I more or less got what I expected with this movie um, and, and what I hoped um, that I would get with this movie, which is a, you know, lighthearted, um, fun romp with, like, two likable protagonists um, and some fun action scenes. Like, I think that this, this movie is... a stark contrast from the action scenes of Jurassic World where it's just like a whole lot of nothing happening um, I think that uh, in this movie the you know the action the CGI is employed very creatively um, and you know a lot of that has to do with what the the main character's special abilities are um, but I think that they do some things with the action scenes uh, and with the CGI which uh, you know which feel fresh and you know, which which kept me on my toes. Um, like, you know, I, I wasn't bored like I was during the action scenes in Jurassic Park because there was always something fun and original happening. Um, so I really like that aspect of the movie. Um, I think that the plot is maybe a little messy. And, um, you know, pro- probably gets a, a little more technical than it needs to. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think Marvel has made it four for four with this movie. Um Although yep. you know, not on the same level as some of those others, I had a good time. Yeah, I think I think that's a really great way to frame this movie. I I, I had thought of this as the third MCU movie, which is accurate. But you're right, Deadpool two also came out, and and even to, to I I think of that movie so so differently from the MCU because I think of it more closely with the X Men franchise, even though it's sure. re- it really is its own thing. Um, <laughs> but I I agree, they're they're really crushing, and I think that you could even go back to last year, this last year and a half. Um, starting with, I guess, really a year, because Spider-Man Homecoming came out around this time last year. Right. From Spider-Man Homecoming to Thor Ragnarok to Black Panther to Infinity War, and now to this, although to a lesser extent, they're really crushing it. And I, 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 some people would even say Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 probably should be included in that, although I didn't love that movie personally, um, especially compared to the original Guardians of the Galaxy, but that's that's not what we're talking about today. But the point is, I think that, that Kevin Feige and you know the the machine that is Marvel movie studios over there, they are absolutely crushing it right now. And, you know, the, their last 
four MCU movies, last sorry, last five MCU movies have all been spectacular. They're they're probably in the top ten of uh, out of the, like twenty one movies there are now. Like the last five movies have all been in the top half easily, and you could probably make an argument for being five of the you know the best six, seven, or eight movies that they that they produced over there. And yeah. I think that Ant Man and the Wasp, as as much as it tries to tries to follow that, I think it does. It, it also kind of adopts the persona of the original movie. I think that Peyton Reed sticks to his guns and like what he knows worked for the first movie, and he doesn't deviate too much from that. And I appreciate that because I don't know if I got another movie of the intensity of Black Panther or Infinity War, I don't know if I'd love that. Um, Absolutely, yeah. And I think that Ant Man and the Wasp came at the right time, like. The good parts about this movie are still its humor. Like the best part of this movie is the jokes that that land and and the characters that are really genuinely funny in this movie. And I really love that. I think the chemistry between Evangeline Lilly and Paul Rudd is pretty good, and it kind of needs to be in some moments, um, in order for these characters to be believable. But at the same time, you also see that like Paul Rudd cares a lot about his family, and yeah, he wants he wants that to include. Uh, Evangeline Lilly's character, but he also cares a lot about his daughter, who I think is one of the strongest characters in this movie. And I just really loved watching all, like every scene between uh, Scott and Cassie is just great, and his daughter is savage, and I absolutely love it. Um, <laughs> we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But the point is that I think this movie really rides rides its highs when it when you when you're getting characters like Louis like Luis and Cassie and even the 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 FBI agent Jimmy Woo is his name he's played by Randall Park I I think that there are some great supporting uh comedy characters in this film and those are the high points of the film for me uh like you the plot does doesn't doesn't quite capture uh, uh, logical sense for me, but I mean that being said, we're talking about like quantum entanglement and quantum physics, so maybe yeah. maybe I'm missing some stuff. But I also it, you haven't seen the first movie, so you don't have this context. And you haven't read the comics, which I haven't either, to be fair. But the like they really take some some fast and loose liberties with the ant like the Ant Man technology of like shrinking and growing. Like the whole okay. the whole point of it is that you're able to maintain like you're able to maintain like the strength that you have when you are normal size because like your molecules just tighten. They don't actually shrink. You're just like in a really confined space. And like the opposite of that would be true when you like enlarge. And so like, like your weight shouldn't really be that different when you're small versus when you're large. It's like, that's my understanding. It's why you're able to punch so, so strong when you're, when you're small, when you're, when, when he turns into Ant-Man, like when he's actually Ant-Man. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, some of the science behind, like, them shrinking a building and, like, rolling off with it is really strange to me. Like, maybe I'm not understanding the technology very well, but I thought it was, like, the mass doesn't shrink. It's, like, the density of the mass changes and the size. Okay. So, yeah, like, yeah, I, yeah. I think that I'm not – I could be really wrong on this, but they just get really loose with the science, I think, in this film. And, and to some degree they did in the last film as well, but they really – I really took some liberties, I thought, with it. But, I mean, that, that I don't think that's the point of this movie. I, I, like, sure, I was like, that doesn't really feel right. But that didn't, like, really bother me that much. Like, it didn't hinder my enjoyment of the movie because I didn't go to the movie to, like, get some really compelling plot uh, yeah. with, with some, like, really interesting science involved. Like, I went to the movie because these characters are funny and, like, it was it's still a good time. So as, as much as I thought the plot, like, left something to be desired for me, 
uh, as well as a few of the characters, uh, particularly Sonny Birch, is <laughs> played by Walton Goggins. Um, I thought that this movie did its job. Like, it made me laugh several times, very hard, and that's what I wanted, and that's what it gave me. Yeah, I mean, I, I pretty much agree with you. Like, that's kind of what I was going to say when you were talking about the science, is that, well, you know, maybe maybe it doesn't quite get all that right. Um, but I wasn't really paying too much attention to that. I, I was just kind of like letting it take me along for the ride, mm-hmm. uh, and it was an enjoyable ride. Agreed. Uh, and, and I think that's that's the overarching point that I wanted to make at the end. But to kind of talk a little bit about the cast, I have these kind of bucketed into, like, three categories. You have, like, the returning main characters. So that is Paul Rudd's uh, Scott Lang, who is Ant-Man. You have Evangeline Lilly, who is Hope Van Dyne and the Wasp in this movie. And then Michael Douglas, who's Hank Pym, who's the former Ant-Man and also kind of the master the master scientist behind all this operation. And I'd love to just get your thoughts. I mean, they're not returning characters for you, but what did you think of their performances? Well, I really like... Paul Rudd and this Scott Lang character because he is, you know, one one thing which has always made like Spider-Man probably my favorite superhero is when he's not Spider-Man, he's just a normal guy. Um, and sometimes I feel like that gets lost in the MCU because you have people like Tony Stark, who's, you know, a billionaire playboy or, you know, Thor, who's a Norse god, like there's not like a ton of separation between their superhero persona and their real persona. And like, you know, it's sometimes hard to relate to like their, their human persona. Um, but that was, uh, that was definitely not the case with Scott Lang. Um, and, and Ant-Man, like, I think that he, you know, like I said, he's just a normal guy. He's a father who is trying to do what's best for, um, his daughter. Uh, you know, he obviously, he still has a good relationship with, um, his ex-wife. Okay, yeah, so that, that's an interesting part and a huge contrast to the first film. Like, he's, like, a very rough relationship with his wife okay. and her and her uh, new husband. And, and, and it's almost weird how good of their relationship is in this movie. Uh, but that's a minor point. Keep going, though. Yeah, but, um, and, and, you know, even some of these plot moments which we're talking about, um, how, when it gets really technical, like, he, he's always, like, he, he will come in with these quips of like, oh, he acts like he knows what he's what they're talking about, but obviously he really doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a good both a good thing and a bad thing because like we do have a character who's like you know sort of in the same position as we are of you know not really understanding what they're talking about with all this quantum physics stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but also like they don't even even when Scott Lang makes it obvious that oh he doesn't really understand what's going on here, they are, they still don't really slow it down and like say okay, here's actually what we're talking about. I think it's, you know, it's just kind of a, a moment of uh, humor to that they that they install into these scenes. But I don't think that it ends up really affecting the way that they tell the, the story and the way that, um, you know, the, the, these technical parts of the plot. I, um, I agree. They're, they even lean really hard into that as a joke, uh, at like halfway through the film in a particular scene where they actually have, uh, this is like a light spoiler, I'd say, not a huge spoiler, but they have... Uh, Janet Van Dyne, you know, c- controlling Scott Lang essentially, and they lean so hard into the fact yeah. that like, obviously Scott Lang is not someone who's like super nuanced in the science behind this, and so to see yeah, him he, like clicking away at, at the computer, exactly, he goes towards the keyboard and they're immediately like, no, no, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, 
and I mean, I liked Evangeline Lilly's character as well. Um, I think that the chemistry between her and Paul Rudd is good, as you um, as you stated. I think that like they balance each other out nicely because Paul Rudd is kind of just this goofy, um, you know, guy who doesn't always have it all put together. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hope is kind of the opposite. Like she is a you know a pretty strong and strong-willed character. Um, she knows her stuff when it comes to this. Uh, quantum physics and she like handles herself very well in the you know action sequences yeah which is Um, a direct carryover from the first film if you ever do watch the first film you'll see that she's such a commanding character in the first movie even even though in some parts she's faking being very uh submissive to the the villain in that movie who's played by Corey Stoll but she's so assertive in, in the moments with Scott with Scott in particular and also her father yeah, and speaking of her father, I really enjoyed Michael Douglas's performance as Hank Pym. I think that he has a great balance of like, you know, kind of egotistical mad scientist, but also like, you know, he's a dad and like he has he, you know, I, I think that the related the relationship between him and Hope is really well done, um, and I think that he also gets you know some good moments of humor in the film. Um, and, you know, I, I, I was definitely emotionally invested in, you know, his, in particular, his, like, quest to rescue his wife from the quantum realm. Um, mm-hmm. Because, obviously, his connection is probably the most personal to her of, of anyone else in the movie, um, with the exception of maybe Hope. But, um, so, so, you know, I, I think that, you know, he, he played the character really well, and I'm glad that he was a major part of the movie and not just kind of an auxiliary character. Yeah, I think that's that's true. And it's also very true for the first film as well. Uh, I'm sure that they spent a lot of money to get Michael Douglas in so many of those scenes. Um, but we're all, well worth it, I think. Yes. Yeah, I, I echo many of your thoughts about these characters. I think I think Paul... I, I actually... I think Paul Rudd's maybe like a, a pretty underrated actor. I, I think he's actually really good. He has a pretty wide range. Um, mm-hmm. He really nails... He really nails Ant Man for me. Like th- this is totally a character who could not, who could be like very disinteresting. Like Scott Lang slash Ant Man could be. I mean, like maybe you won't get this joke, but like very, like very much could be like the Aquaman of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and I don't mean that in terms of like the DCEU's portrayal of it, but like Aquaman is often made fun of as just being the the guy who can talk to fish in like the DC yeah. universe. Exactly. Because, and it's like not super. It's like stupid it's like really stupid and, and not interesting and ant-man could be this like oh like you shrink to become yeah, the size really of an silly, ant silly on the surface but yeah and paul rudd really brings this character to life i think he does such yeah. a great job with it uh, i'm a big evangeline lily fan from back in the days of lost uh when it was her and was sure. it matthew fox were the leads sure, on that yeah. show uh really really loved her then and then she took a sabbatical from acting for a really long period of time uh, and this was actually one of her first movies after she came back. Uh, Ant-Man was, I should say, not Ant-Man and the Wasp. But, yeah, so I, I really enjoy her in this role, and I think that, you know, she's, I mean, she's definitely not going, I mean, she's not the best actress you've ever seen, but she really nails this role. Uh, I think it works for her. I think she's super, uh, she has the she has the charisma to be a, a very assertive uh, character, and, and she really nails, I think, playing both Hope Van Dyne and the Wasp, if that makes sense. And, and I think that she's the she's the right she's the right person for that role. And, and I, I only echo everything that you've said about Michael Douglas. 
so to move on to like the second bucket of of, of actors i have them in, in and this is like very much in quotation marks because like none of them are really villains but they're like the yeah. antagonists of the film right so you have hannah john Kamen who plays ghost uh and then we eventually learn that her name is ava star and then you also have lawrence fishburne who plays bill foster and then Walton Goggins, who we've mentioned already, playing this black market dealer, but very low level, uh, Sonny Birch. Yeah, well, Walton Goggins, first of all, Walton Goggins is a national treasure. Um, like, he, there is no one who chews the scenery like he does um, whenever he has a supporting performance in a movie. Um, oh, Christoph so Waltz, think, come on. Well, true, I mean, yeah, but uh, I think he was perfectly cast in this. Um, as you know as as you've correctly described this like low-level arms dealer like he's this guy who like he, you know he kind of he talks a big game but really he's kind of he's kind of, he kind of doesn't really matter and he's been busy um, we'll remind our, our our listeners that he was the villain in tomb raider earlier this earlier this year oh yeah that's right yeah. uh well I, I i always enjoyed his work um going back to the days of when he was unjustified on fx um yeah i I uh, I've always enjoyed his work, and I think that, like I said, this, he's perfectly cast here. Um, as for the other villains, uh, I think maybe this is where um, the movie. It, this is a weak spot in the movie. Um, I think that. I mean, I've enjoyed Hannah John Kamen before in like Black Mirror. Um, she's in several episodes of Black Mirror, um, but I don't think they did enough with this character. Like, I think it is an interesting character i think that like ghost like her powers and stuff are cool like and, and like you manifest themselves in a really interesting way in the fight scenes but this character isn't introduced till like an hour into the movie or something um and i don't know i just didn't feel enough of a uh connection i, I mean i don't know if you're really i mean you're you're, you're supposed to connect with because, as you pointed out, like there's no real villain, so to speak. Like uh, they, they may have somewhat malicious intent in like extracting the quantum energy from uh, from Mrs. Van Dyne, um, but like the reason that they're doing it is because like Ava is going to die if they don't. Um, so like you you can understand where they're coming from. And when I say they, I'm also talking about Lawrence Fishburne's character, of course. Um, yep. But I don't know. I just felt like this character wasn't fleshed out enough, partially because it she's not introduced until a, a good distance into the movie. But I would be interested in seeing more from this character in the future because I think there is potential there. And Lawrence Fishburne, I mean, he's a good actor. Um, but this character's just kind of... I don't know. He's kind of the James Cromwell character almost in this movie. Um, he's just kind of... Uh, you know, he's, he's a straight-laced academic who... Um, you know, it gets involved uh, with with Ava and like trying to protect her. Um, and you know, he has a little bit of a relationship with Michael Douglas. Or he has. I mean, they they work together. At Shield, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, um, and they had a huge falling out. Yeah. Um, so there's a little bit of backstory there, but I didn't think he did anything really to infuse the character with, you know, nothing we haven't seen before. Um, so maybe the, in the villains department that this is um, it, it is an area where the movie lags a little bit. Although, I, like I said, I did enjoy Walton Goggins a lot. Yeah, I think that's all. F- 
fair. Uh, funnily enough, Hannah John Kamen, I was just looking, was also in Tomb Raider earlier this year in, really? a, in a really minor role. She's like Lara Croft's best friend yeah. in, in, well, in for- England. I forgot that movie, like, the second I started, walked out of it, so... And she was also in Ready Player One. So this is definitely her uh, her star movie for you so far this year. See if she's in any others. Uh, yes. Later this year, if she, can, if she can continue, maybe an upward trend. But uh, I think that her character is definitely, I agree with you, definitely one that you're supposed to feel for, and that, you know, her father... Uh, I mean, not... I mean, this is a little spoilery, I guess, but, like, her father, you know... And, well, I should say her whole family... Uh, being killed in a quantum explosion that also left her uh, with this ability to phase through objects because her atoms are literally being ripped apart, or her molecules are being ripped apart and reformed over and over again. And the the crux of this movie is, of course, that w- you can't ask too many questions, but like for some reason, after years and years, she now only has like a couple weeks to live. Um, it, obviously, that's a little bit hand-wavy, and you have to ignore the like how that's possible or like why now like the kind of why now question um versus 10 10 years ago or however long it's been but the i agree that she does and i i, I don't actually remember whether you came out as positive or negative on her performance but i think she does an okay job like she does she's does anything special in this movie for me and i don't think that um i mean I don't. I mean, I agree that Lawrence Lawrence Fishburne Lawrence Fishburne just wasn't wasn't given much to do in this movie. Yeah. yeah. And Hannah John came in, I think maybe was and didn't crush it. I, I don't know if you disagree with okay, me there yeah. or not. I I think that like there's a lot of potential for that character, and I'm not sure whether it's the writing for the character or if it's her performance that left me feeling like not actually caring that much that she whether she like lived or died. And I definitely think that you're supposed to want her to live. So, I I mean it's it's a really touching moment at the end of the film when, again I guess we're going this is I mean this is very spoilery but when they do, uh, when they are able to finally retrieve Janet from Janet Van Dyne Hope's mother Hank's wife from the quantum realm she is able to use some powers that she has developed or harnessed or or something down in the quantum realm over the last thirty years to essentially restore Ava's, I don't know, molecules to, to being stable, to be in equilibrium. And that allows, yeah, well, that heals her, essentially. Yeah, my understanding was that basically, because the whole time they wanted to extract the energy from Janet Van Dyne, but yeah. they weren't sure what kind of effect that that would have on her. Yep. Um, so, I, you know, my understanding of what happened was, well, it turns out that she was able to, they were able to extract the energy from her without causing her any physical harm. Well, okay. Um, so it's kind Maybe. of like everybody wins, ultimately. I think so. I think that if they, while they were extracting the energy, though, I think that would have killed her. Because they would have extracted all of her energy. But I think that she was okay. able well, see, okay. to channel energy that healed okay. her without harming her. I think it's one of those things where, like, you know, if you ask nicely, I can heal you and no one gets hurt. But, like, if you yeah. take it by hand, someone's going to get hurt. All right, kind of thing. Um, or take it by force and someone gets hurt. I think it's one of those deals, which doesn't really make too much sense. But, again, I think it's just you kind of have to roll with it. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I agree. And then if we're talking about the villains kind of rounded out here, I think Walton Goggins is by far the best, the best one in terms of the acting. Although I think his character is dumb. Like, I think his character is really dumb. Yeah, he um, makes the most of it. But yeah. yeah, but and I want and I want to say like 
in contrast to the other quote unquote villains, I think he makes the most of his character, which I appreciate. Yeah, and he he also like he matches the tone of this movie perfectly. Like the he, best, yeah, because he's also super incompetent and drives around in this like tricked out like white gold gold rimmed yeah. Mercedes <laughs> SUV. It's just hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe one of the, like I said, he matched the tone of the best of the other villains because the other villains are tasked a little bit with, you know, with, like, some some of the more emotional, like, Serious. dimensions of this movie. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so, so maybe that's why you weren't connecting as much. And, I mean, why I wasn't connecting as much with, like, Hannah John Kamen's character because it is a little off-center from the rest of the film. And, I mean, I like that that, that the movie has that emotional... Mm-hmm. level to it um like i think that it's important that it's there but it does sometimes feel a little jarring uh you know in contrast to like the you know fun banter between like uh you know ant-man and the wasp and also like michael pena and ti's characters and that whole um mm-hmm. supporting cast as well yeah and speaking of which i want to i want to talk about them because i think that uh, these these characters for me are, are make the movie right. So I, I I would call this the the supporters. So you have Michael Pena as Luis, you have Randall Park as Jimmy Woo, and then I mean there are more than this, but these are the three big ones for me. And then Abby Ryder Fortson who plays Cassie. I, and I think these characters are just perfect. Like I mean like Lewis you get from is a carryover from the first movie, and so is Cassie for that matter. Although she has like zero scenes in the first movie, and she's not like a meaningful character. Um, <laughs> But Luis is is I mean in the first movie I think I think it's not a controversial statement to say he is the re- like the best part of that movie, and although I wouldn't say he's the necessarily the best part of this movie, like you get the same essence and he's just fantastic in in this film. Like Michael Pena crushes it as Luis. You get one of his uh, crazy story sequences, which I don't I mean I don't know if you've seen clips from Ant Man, but he has. So there's the scene where he where the, he gets the the quote the truth serum or whatever, and he goes into this like this like rant about how he met Paul Red Scott Lang like how he met Scott Lang, and this like weird flashback where he's like talking in all the different characters' voices. Yeah, that you get that multiple times in the first movie, and it, they are the best scenes in the first movie. They're so funny, um, and it was great to get another one of those in this movie for me. And I, I've kind of already mentioned this, but I just love. Uh, Randall Parks, the FBI, the FBI agent, who's his name, the FBI agent's name is Jimmy Woo. Um, I think that character is just hilarious, hilariously like insecure about his like, like his jokes and like takes everyone a little bit too seriously, uh, yes. too literally, and it's just hilarious. Like the the last scene even in the movie where he's like, they take the ankle Do bracelet off. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> it's amazing. It's so funny. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. And then I've already mentioned her, but um, Abby Ryder Fortson, who plays Cassie, is so savage in this movie. I love it, um, both to other people, but particularly to Scott, to, to to her father. And these three characters are the shining points in terms of the what makes this movie great. And that, like I mentioned earlier, that's the comedy. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I really enjoyed the work of all three of these characters and in their individual roles. Um, I think that. Uh, Cassie has some great scenes. Um, like, I, you know, I, I really like the scene where uh, Scott has been gone from the house for a long time, and and the, you know they come into to what is it that they he she's left something at at Scott's house. The, her right? soccer cleats, come, I think. 
Right. They come to pick it up, and she goes up there, and she sees the 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 ant or the giant the giant bug, which is basically replaced Scott in the house. Yeah, it's, it's the ant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, so I like the scene where you know she's trying to have to cover for him um, to Randall mm-hmm. Park's character as they're um, you know about to to catch Scott for jumping out on his house arrest. Um, I think I, I, I enjoyed that scene. And yeah, I mean, like you said, Michael Pena, he's kind of a, he, he's, he's a scene stealer. Absolutely. In this movie. Um, and it's kind of surprising to me too, because he's usually someone who plays serious roles in movies. Um, yeah, he was an end. Know, of, I remember him from like end of watch. End of watch. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And, and I mean, there's, there's others you can point to as well, um, where he, he does tend to play more serious characters. Uh, but he definitely shows off his comedic chops here as this like really like bumbling, like fast talking uh, sidekick of sorts uh, to Scott. I mean, and, and especially you know in the moments where he's given this truth serum. Um, I'd say I'd talk- say wannabe sidekick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's just talking a million miles an hour and like confessing everything, and yeah, it, it, it's it's really funny um, and. Like you said, I mean, I don't know that I would say that this is, these are the shining moments of the movie to me, but the, all three of them like improve the movie in noticeable ways, mm-hmm. um, and you know, really add to like the spirit of fun that I think is what makes this movie great. Yep, yeah, I totally agree with that. Absolutely, uh, can't can't praise those characters enough. And there are, like I mentioned, there are also others. They're the other two members of of the company who are also carryovers. From from the first movie, I believe it's uh, Dave and Kurt who are played by T. I. Harris and Dave Desmalchian. Um It's they're they're like all they're, they're they're essentially just like more incompetent versions of Louise, which is like kind of funny at times. Uh, they were better in the first movie, in my opinion, but they're still there. I I appreciated it, but the, these three characters that I talked about are probably the the big three supporters who do the work. Yeah, agreed. All right, so moving along to the quote-unquote the plot, although I think we've, we've talked about some of these points already, including the science of the film. I don't think there's any reason to, to retrace our steps over the kind of the things that I talked about, about why I wonder whether it's how, like how loose they played with the, with the science behind it. But I do want to say that I think that one of the things that really just like really caught me off guard in this movie is I didn't realize they were going to be like estranged. Like so, so there's obviously Scott Lang, who's under house arrest, for two years since Civil War, and then there's Hank and Hope, um, who have been on the run for two years since Civil War because of that. And I didn't, I know, I mean, you're not supposed to know any of that context going into the movie, I don't think. But I was really surprised by this, and I was really surprised by like that falling out based on like the ending point of the first movie. And I was just yeah. like really caught off guard of like the setup for the film, so to speak. And it didn't make much sense to me. I mean, again. I'm, I didn't come to this movie to like for the plot to like necessarily make sense, but I was like it was I was noticeably caught off guard by something that did not make sense to me in the setup for the movie. But I guess you breeze past it. Yeah, I mean, again, not having seen the first movie, um, it's you know it's hard to say. Like you know, it, it's hard to for me to agree or disagree with you on that. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I have seen Civil War, so you know. I do think that, you know, the events of Civil War obviously were very contentious among, you know, not just Ant-Man and the Wasp, obviously, but, like, you know, Captain America, Tony Stark, like, it, basically some, some lines were drawn in the sand mm-hmm. um, between the Avengers, so I don't think, 
like at least for me personally having not seen the first ant-man like i think it's somewhat understandable going into this one that you know there would be kind of a little bit of a rift between hope and scott yeah i i mean i get the rift part but like the logic used in the movie for them to like not speak for two years was that like oh you went to germany which is where the civil war well that big climactic scene in civil war took place um, you went to Germany and fought with slash against the Avengers, like, and you didn't tell anyone about it. Like, you didn't tell us about it, so we're not like you're you're done. Like, you're dead to us. It just like yeah. it, it felt weird. I, again, I don't want to dwell on it too much because it's like not the point of the movie uh, for yeah. me. But it was something that I was <laughs> really caught off guard by at the beginning of the movie. But I guess the kind of other big point to kind of maybe move us toward wrapping up here is is wanted to talk about the Stanley cameo because it's a Marvel movie. We have to talk about it. And then also, what what my fr- what my friend uh, Jay, who who I did the Marvel podcast with, uh, called the real reason why everyone came to see Ant Man and the Wasp, and that's the po- the mid credit scene. <laughs> yeah. um, so we'll start with the Stan Lee cameo. You tweeted out uh, that this was one of the best. So why don't you walk us walk us through your thoughts on it? It was great. Um, he basically he's yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but he's getting car right yeah yeah he's getting into it he's getting into his um, car yeah his car gets shrunk um and he just remarks something i wish i could remember the exact line but it's like well the 60s were great uh but now it looks like i'm paying for them or something like yeah that. it's like but um, now i'm really paying for it <laughs> something yeah. like that um i i agree I, the only one which i can remember enjoying more was in thor when he's like yeah truck and he's trying to pull the hammer out of the ground and the pickup truck just gets destroyed yeah oh man that, i that's, laughed so hard at that the first time i saw it that is also um, the one cameo that i think beats this one for me i was actually talking about that with uh, someone i saw the movie with yesterday i was like the only cameo that i can think of that was better than that one was the one from thor yeah um but yeah that that was one of the hardest that i laughed in this movie was was Stanley's cameo, um, and then yeah, the the mid credit scene was was great. Um, like, I think it, it really reined things back into like where we are in the Marvel universe. Because you know, I mean, I, I knew that this movie was going to be a little like removed from what was going on in the MCU. Yeah, but I mean, the time, they said coming I, into the movie that this happens concurrent with Infinity okay. War. See, I didn't know that. So, I, so I was kind of wondering during the movie, like. Well, you know what? You know where? When exactly does this take place? Like with respect to the events of Avengers: Infinity War, mm-hmm. and what we see in the mid-credit scene is basically Hank and Hope have sent um, Scott into the uh, the quantum realm, uh, and they're about to pull him back out. And as they are about to pull him back out, they get dusted. Um, they get dusted. Is that what we're calling it? That's hilarious. I think that's what that's what I've seen people calling it. Um, okay. And so Scott is basically stuck in the, the quantum realm while Hank and, and Hope have suffered the same thing as yep. Spider-Man and Black Panther and everyone else we saw at the end of, of Infinity War. Yeah. Uh, my, my favorite uh, comment from the peanut gallery is right 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 before right when he's asking for them to like pull him out or whatever, someone behind me goes like, I don't feel so good. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, oh no. Uh, because that's the line that Spider-Man says to Tony Stark right before he yeah. gets dusted. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so obviously huge deal to, to your point to rein this back in to the events of Infinity War and also the wider MCU because the next movie is Captain Marvel. Uh, and that's So we're actually done with the MCU for this year. 
the, the next movie coming out is going to be Captain Marvel, which is... With a, Brie Larson. With Brie Larson, who is really exciting. And it isn't... It, it's a it's like a kind of a Captain America, the first Avenger movie, where the events of yeah. that movie are going to happen in the early 90s, I believe. And that's okay. going... And I'm assuming that the post-credit scene or the mid-credit scenes from that or the end of that movie is going to align with the lead-in to the Avengers movie that will be coming out next year that is unti- currently untitled but is releasing. Yeah. yeah. So, so Captain Marvel comes out March 8th as of right now. There's no way that's getting pushed back because the untitled Avengers sequel is coming out May 3rd, only two months after that, which also can't get pushed back because the sequel to Spider-Man homecoming called far from home (laughs) is coming out July 5th next year. Like I said, only 90s kids will remember when it was like a spring Marvel movie and a fall one. Yeah, you're right. I mean, last last time they only had two movies a year was back in 2016. So they had Civil War and Doctor Strange. Um, yeah. And then they've since then, you know, last year and this year and next year, they're gonna have three movies a year. Which you know, if they keep producing qu- the quality of movies that they've been producing for the last year, I'm fine with it. So yeah, they're they're really good stuff. But I think I'm lot- back on board with Marvel. I will say after you know going through a little bit of a time where I wasn't as interested, I, I'm definitely I'm definitely invested again. Yeah, and I'm I'm excited. Like you said, Brie Larson playing Captain Marvel. Uh, again, we're gonna be waiting a little while because it's, it's gonna be about nine months, uh, eight or nine months to to get us there. But she's gonna be the lead role, and Samuel L. Jackson because it's Nick Fury uh, is is also has a lead role in that movie, and he hasn't had a lead role in a, in a Marvel film. Yeah. Um. So that's exciting because Samuel L. Jackson's great. And then we'll be right back in the Infi- the Infinity War sequel. Like we don't have to wait, you know, three years for another Avengers movie. Uh, we're gonna get the follow up next year but i think probably talked enough about the mcu so why don't we go ahead and enter our actual wrap-up phase here what's your favorite moment or scene from ant-man and the wasp oh goodness well i guess it would probably have to be the stanley cameo just because that was i mean that was the moment that i tweeted out um and it, it did probably make me laugh the hardest um you know, there were some other moments off the t- like which I, I can't exactly think of off the top of my head which I enjoyed. But I will say that like a lot of the action sequences, like I loved you know some of the creative things that they did with some of them. Like you know, like I was alluding to earlier. I mean, we have like giant Pez dispensers yeah. and we have like Hot Wheels cars getting blown up to life size. Like mm-hmm. oh, that's cool stuff. Like that you don't usually see with like. Uh, you know CGI in some of these movies. Um, yep. So I ap- I appreciated a lot of the action sequences because of the way that they made uh, good use of the characters' powers of changing size. Yeah, they got a lot more creative with with that in this film, even to the point of I mean we'd seen it in Civil War, but the but the enlarging rather than just the shrinking aspect. Yeah, when she makes the when she blows up the salt shaker too. It's, a, it's actually in the trailer that moment, so yep. you may have seen it even if you haven't seen it. But that's yeah, really cool one. that and the Pez dispenser were both in trailers, which is kind of disappointing because they are really yeah. great moments to see for the first time. Um, but they showed them off in the trailer. Nevertheless, uh, yeah, that's a that's the Stanley cameo is great for me. It's hard to pick just one because there are so many comedic moments that are just hilarious. Like it could be that final scene with the FBI agent when he's like, "Oh, do you want to go to lunch?" <laughs> uh, or uh, it could be any scene with Cassie where she just like rips into. To, to Scott um, or rip, rips into something peripheral to that. But I think I'm going to go with kind of like I alluded to from the first film. It, it's got to be Lewis's flashback scenes with the truth serum 
uh, in this movie is probably the favorite scene, but it's really hard to pick one because there's a lot of hilarious moments in this movie. Yeah, another line which I liked, um, which I just remembered, I don't know why this made me laugh so hard, but when they go to basically to meet up with Lawrence Fishburne's character for the first time, and they like put on baseball caps and sunglasses oh, yeah. to go like go into his class and scott is basically saying like this is ridiculous like we don't uh this isn't a good disguise we just look like ourselves going to a baseball game <laughs> <laughs> that was so, a... which was a good line i thought which is also true because like people that i feel like that's always used exactly. as a disguise yeah, in it movies makes fun of like you, you see that in a lot of movies and i'm like you don't look you don't look disguised i mean come on yeah, I feel like the like biggest the biggest culprit of that is like the Bourne movies always used to do that. I remember. Yeah. It's like yeah. always just like Matt, Matt Damon in a in a baseball cap and glasses and like a bomber yeah. jacket. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. So that that's our favorite moments. How about a score for Ant Man and the Wasp? Seven point five. Um, I enjoyed myself. Um, I think this movie was about as uh, enjoyable as I expected it to be, as as it could have been. Um, so I'm going to go with the 7.5 just because, like I said, I think it falls short of, um, you know, the other three Mar- Marvel movies we've seen. For sure. And I'm, I'm in the ballpark with you. I'm at a 7.0 exactly. So feels, feels about right. All right. That should just about do it for our MCU talk for the day. I, I know I, I kind of dove deep there at the end and started talking about the release schedule, but let's take another quick break. And, and when we return, we'll be wrapping up our discussion of American Animals that we started last time on the podcast before we give a brief mention to our personal top three films of the year thus far, and then we'll wrap up with some news. We'll be back in a second. Welcome back to part three of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, we started to talk about American Animals last time on the podcast, but now that I've seen it, it's probably worth revisiting at least for a few minutes. Were there any particular points that you wanted to get my thoughts on the movie, or do you just kind of want to hear my high-level impressions? Well, I mean, both, but I do want to know specifically what you thought about, you know, I was dancing around it last time. Um, but the fact that they used, you know, the real interviews with the real people involved yep. in the heist, um, yep. like interspersed with the events of, uh, you know, the, the, the actual dramatized, heist. Yep. dramatized you know, uh, depiction of the heist. And I thought that that really added a, a real, uh, like a, a layer to this movie that is, makes it something a little bit more meaningful than you would get in a normal heist movie. I agree. I think that that is a layer that I really liked at times I, I will say at all times it added a dimension that made this movie different from the typical heist movie exactly what you talked about last time on the podcast and that's something that i think i net appreciated although at times i think that it made it more it maybe almost made it more or it asked more questions than it answered and that's fine i think i think movies are I think definitely that's partially the point yeah i agree yeah i, I think that they, it asked more questions than it answered but i don't necessarily think that made for like at all times, a better movie. Like, not every question they asked improved the movie for me. Mm-hmm. And I and I know that there was one in particular that I talked with you briefly after I saw it, and I was like, well, they were asking essentially the question. I know we're, we're going, like, heavy spoilers here, I think, 
<laughs> if that wasn't clear already. But, like, they're asking a question of whether or not you can, like, trust this, like, retelling of the heist. I mean, and, and this is, like, I was looking back at some of the other stuff that Bart Layton has done, and it's not that's not an unusual theme for him in his movies, uh, whether you can trust your narrator. Yeah, the imposter, it was very heavy in that as well. Exactly. And I think that it's fine to ask that question. I, I think that, like, mo- movies and, you know, forms of media, whether that's a book or, or whatever, like, you're allowed to ask that question. But I think they don't do enough with it. I think that they they ask a question about, like, a real-life event about whether or not you can trust both their reenactment of the event and also, like, the character's comments on the reenactment or, like, or on the events. I shouldn't say on the reenactment, but on the events themselves. And I think that that's fine, but they just don't, they don't fully lean into it, and it seems like this should be, like, one of their, like, it should have been one of their central themes, and instead they just, like, toss it out there a couple times and just let you mull it over without ever really, and I shouldn't say that they need to answer the question, but I just don't think they, they explored it enough in the movie, and I thought that was one of the weaker points for me. Okay. Um, I know you disagree. Yeah. I know that you disagree with me on that, but yeah, I mean, I, I thought that it added, you know, like I, like I was saying, I thought that it added this layer of like, you know, this the reason that they got involved in the heist is like because they want to be legendary and all this stuff, and like you know, they're yeah. they're like looking for their uh, legacy to to carry on after this heist. So I think it, it gets at like, how do we tell these stories like? 10 years 20 years from now mm-hmm. like what gets remembered what gets forgotten um and i don't know it, it kind of just got to like this larger point about like mythology almost and sure like y- you know what get, what like i said what gets forgotten what gets left out and you know what do we consider to be the important details like when we tell these stories 20 years from now and, and, and you know how 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 are these stories affected by whether the heist is successful or not, because of course the heist isn't ultimately successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think that's it's fair. I think I think there are other ways they do that better, better than asking the question about like what what's what gets remembered, because they're not. That's not not really what they're doing. I think when they're like talking about whether or not, oh, did like they really meet that person on the street in New York, or oh, did he really go to Amsterdam to meet Amsterdam. those? Like it's, it's like it's, just, it's not really what they're accomplishing by doing that, by asking that question in that moment. And if that was their goal, then like that's a poor job of storytelling on like Bart Layton or whoever. Wrote, I think he wrote he wrote the dramatized version of it too. I think right. So um, yeah, yeah. I, I just I, I don't I just don't think it lands the way other parts of the film do for me because there are aspects of this film that do land and are really powerful and. I think that you touched on a lot of them last week, uh, or, or last time on the podcast, and for me... And the actual heist itself is very suspenseful, at least to me it was. Yeah, it, it's strange because like it's simultaneously incredibly suspenseful and also very slow-moving. Like One of the things yeah. about this movie is that like this movie moves at a like glacial pace sometimes. It is like very slow, and that's not always a bad thing. It's not always a bad thing. Um, but it, and I think that if I can jump in, I yeah, think that it, it mirrors like what these characters are going through because that's part. Of, I mean, that's one of the major reason they get involved in the heist is because they don't like what their lives are doing. Like they're kind of stuck in this like period, like this 
period of ennui almost where they're just like very like disinterested with what's going on in their life lives they want to do something to spice it up yep. so i think that like the slow pace of it sort of matches you know yeah. what the characters are going through and they need this heist to like you know give them a sense of purpose and to like revitalize their lives i think that's fair um it, it, if that was the intent i think that's fair that being yeah. said it didn't always make it didn't always engage me at the level that I wish I that I wish, or at least other parts of the movie engaged me in. So, like when the actual heist is happening, like super tense, very engaged. But like there are parts before the heist, like leading up to it, where I'm like, "Wow, we're spending a lot of time on this," and like this isn't super interesting. And it's that is notable if that like is trying to capture the point of like their lives are moving at a glacial pace and they're not super interesting. But it also just doesn't make for, like, interesting film either. And so you have to, like, you have to balance those two things at some point. And sometimes it balances them really well, and other times the movie didn't. And that's okay. Um, And I think that, to to your other point that you were just making, or the point that you were tying those two together with, I think that it's ironic that, like, and, and this isn't, like, a super insightful commentary in the film to make, but it's ironic that in the attempt to make their lives extraordinary they have left themselves being anything but. And I find it interesting that this this movie, to me, and I imagine that you'll have a different perspective on it, like, I just don't think I walked away with anything from this movie, right? Like, like there's no, there's no, like, more powerful point made in the movie other than, like, this generation, or, like, arguably, this generation of people who are trying to, like, who have been told that they can be anything they want to be aren't actually able to be anything they want to be. And I don't know that that's like that powerful of a message because I mean maybe maybe it's just cuz I I've thought about those themes before and like I didn't leave the theater being like wow, like American culture sucks and that like we we get lied to every day that we can, you know, you know, if you work hard enough you can you can achieve your wildest dreams like that's not it's not a super powerful message to be told that i mean I, you know like you said i i, I kind of disagree um i think that that message combined with what you know as i was mentioning earlier what it says about like storytelling and like how, how do we how do we tell stories you know about, about the like because they want to be legendary, but ultimately those aren't the things which are, which get remembered from their story. Um, sure. I mean, so, I mean, what, what's remembered from their story is that like these are a bunch of incredibly incompetent kids who, yeah. if if you're to believe them, which you probably shouldn't, that like this heist should have been really easy, according to them, and they, they yeah. screw it up in so many different ways. Like and they're so incompetent. Best. That's the thing. They're incompetent in conducting the heist, but they're not incompetent people. Like the way that they set the heist up, and like is actually like, you know, pretty clever. I guess it, you know, not considering the, you know, the like for example, the ba- there's no basement door, which is ultimately what dooms them. But I mean, I think that they construct this heist in a way where you think, oh well, they could get away with this. Like I think that the characters are like intelligent characters. It's just in this environment, like, they wilt under the pressure. So I think, you know, that goes to the whole storytelling element because what gets remembered is, oh, these, like, 
these kids were idiots when, you know, maybe they actually weren't. They just didn't pull off the heist. Fair. I think that's, I think that's, I think that's a fair point. Uh, just to, just to hit, I know I've, I've talked mainly as, as, you know, counters to, to your positive points, but I do want to say that, like, I thought the acting in this movie was pretty strong. Um, yes. Across the board, I'm trying to remember all, all of the names right now, and they're escaping me, but I know that, yeah. is it Barry, Barry Keoghan? Yeah. Um, Barry Kogan. Yeah, Go ahead. Evan Peters, Blake Jenner. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the acting is really strong in this movie. I think that it's the, the fact that, and we've already talked about this point, but the fact that Bart Layton juxtaposes the dramatization of the heist with, you know, these conversations with the real people is, is a really interesting thing that sets this film apart from other heist movies. I mean, you talked about it in the context of Ocean's 8 last week. This movie is no Ocean's 8. For, I mean, like, literally for every... The only similarity to Ocean's 8 is that it is a heist movie. Like, nothing yes. else is similar between these two films. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's great. Like, I, I really think that that's a good thing. And the acting is strong. You mentioned Ann Dowd last time, I think. Yeah, because she's in this, and she's in um, Hereditary as well. Yeah, so, like, like, acting, very strong. Soundtrack was really good. Uh, I know it, it's not a score because I think they just used actual songs, right? Uh, yeah. But I enjoyed that, and I think that you know, even if it didn't hit every note it was trying to, I appreciate what Bart Layton was trying to do. And, and overall, uh, this movie is a good movie. Like you should go see this movie. I think. Absolutely. Cool. All right. So I think for just for thoroughness' sake, we might as well put a score on it. Where where are we where are you landing for American Animals? Eight point seven. Eight point seven. That's very strong. Um, for me, I'm coming in, I unsurprisingly, probably to you, lower, but I think uh, a 7.6 feels about right. Still worth seeing. Like I know I dwelled a lot on the negatives, but it's it's a very innovative way to well, go yeah, I mean, I, about a movie. Sorry, go ahead. I, I dwelled on the positives, so that's only fair, I think. Yeah, well, we, we compliment each other, Scott. We'll go with that. Yes. <laughs> and Not just in our names. Oh, goodness. Well, we don't compliment each other in our names. We're exactly the same. That's true. <laughs> All right. So I think we can probably move on to our discussion topic this week. And now that we're at the halfway point of the year, or I should say maybe a little bit after the halfway point of the year, uh, I think it's only fair to talk about the three movies that we maybe have enjoyed the most or we'd most highly recommend people go see. Uh, I hesitate to use the word best uh, because I don't think that these, or at least my three movies, certainly are not the best three movies that I've seen in the first half of the year. But uh, the, the three movies that I think worth mentioning for people who, you know, if you miss them in the first half of the year, you know, they're probably going to be out on, you know, digital release or DVD in the second half and are worth worth catching. Yeah. Um, so I'll say that, like, as a preface, and we were talking about this a little bit before the show, but, um, like, I, in making this list and making or choosing my top three, like, I'm hoping that the second half of the year is... is you know, a, a bit stronger, as it usually is. This one will get most of the big hitters and the big Oscar movies. Yep. Um, but, like, you know, looking through all the movies I've seen this year, and I've seen 23 movies, um, the, there were only probably two that I picked out that would be, like, capital G, great movies mm-hmm. um, that I've seen so far, um, which seems a little low even for first half of the year. Um, but that being said, there have been a lot of good movies. And, you know, if you've listened to the show, you know that I've been pretty positive about most of the movies which we've seen. Um, I just haven't seen much that has blown me away. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yeah, so it, 
I can start us off. Um, Go for it. And I'll I'll just uh, I don't think anything more needs to be said about it because we just said a lot about it, and that's American Animals. Um, was one of my top three. Movies. And just to plug in here quickly, th- this is in no particular order. Yeah, so. this is in no particular order. However, I will save my what I do think is my favorite of the year for last. Okay. Um, my number one favorite. Um, but American Animals, you know, again, I think it's a great heist movie. I think it does. Some interesting things that you don't usually see in heist movies. I think it's well acted. Um, yeah, I I really enjoyed this movie, and you can hear my thoughts on it on our last episode. Absolutely, I think uh, a, a worthy a worthy pick on this list. Uh, it wouldn't make my list uh, for reasons that should be obvious since we just talked about it. But <laughs> I, I do think it's a movie that people should go see. It, it's if even if it's not even if I'm not saying I don't call it a great heist movie I'm saying even if you don't ultimately think it's a great heist movie it's a different kind of heist movie and I appreciate things that are different um, yeah or try to do different things with it which uh, leads me to my first pick for for things that I think also is a movie that does something different or does different things and that is uh, annihilation which came out in very early on in the year came out in February actually it was one of the first movies that I technically saw from 2018 because a lot of the Movies that we saw in January, I think this is also true for you, or actually movies from 2017, but mm-hmm. yeah, Annihilation, directed by Alex Garland, uh, as a quick refresh, it, it, it's a loose adaptation of a, a book series, or at least one book of a book series that um, is sci-fi, I'm not actually remembering the name of the series itself right now, but the first book is called Annihilation as well, but it stars Natalie Portman and, and a host of other characters, and even if this is... I, you know, when we reviewed this movie, I think I mentioned that this is not a perfect film. It's, it's in fact, in, in many ways, it's far from a perfect film. But it's something, and this is Alex Garland does this with his movies. You can know this from Ex Machina if you've seen this. He tries to do different things in his movies. He asks a lot of questions. He answers some of them. He doesn't answer all of them. And he makes you think. And he makes you really think about themes that are, in some ways, deeply uncomfortable to think about. Or, or at least should be deeply uncomfortable to think about because... It, they kind of make you think about your own mortality, and I think that I really appreciate a director who can do this in a, in a clever and nuanced way, and I think that his form of storytelling that you see both in Ex Machina and in Annihilation is such that I really enjoy the way he makes me engage with those themes. And to boot, I also think this movie is well acted and is also quite clever in the questions that it asks and in the questions that it chooses not to answer. Yeah, I also really enjoyed this movie um it was one that i considered picking for my top three it fell just short i guess um and i should say that like you know if you if you listen to the scores that we give to the movies my my top three isn't necessarily consistent with those scores because same for me maybe maybe my opinion has changed on some as i thought about them or, or maybe you know sometimes i just i rate movies based on different standards. Like, I gave Deadpool 2 a, a 9.0 just because I think it was very successful at the type of movie that it was. Um, but if we're talking about comparing it to some other movies, I would probably put it that lower down than even some movies that I, uh, you know, gave lower ratings to originally. Sure, that's totally fine. All right, what's your second pick? Yeah, so my next pick, and this is one of the two, like, capital G great movies, I think, that, that I've seen this year. Uh, and that is Isle of Dogs, Wes Anderson's um, animated uh, comedy drama um, set in Japan. Um, stop motion animated, to, to clarify that point. Not, not just yes, animated. Stop motion animation, yeah. yes. um, you know, I'm, I'm very hot and cold on Wes Anderson. I love some of his movies, some of the others I'm not as crazy about. Um, 
So didn't know what to expect going into this one, but I loved it. Um, I think that it has a very lovable cast of characters. Um, and the voice cast is actually is pretty exceptional. Um, he, Wes Anderson always gets really great performances out of his actors. Um, and I think that this is no exception. Um, in particular, Brian Cranston does a great job. Um, As chief, I believe. Yes. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the other, you know, characters, Jeff Goldblum, Bill Murray, Francis McDormand, and the list goes on and on. There's cast is superstar studded. Mm -hmm. um, I think they all play their parts really well. Uh, I think it is funny and it also has some like, you know, very heartfelt moments um, and, and, you know, an interesting sort of political subtext as well, um, which I think goes over a lot better than the political subtext in Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Um, and so, yeah, I, I uh, really enjoyed this movie and you know, even if you're not a Wes Anderson fan, I think this is one which the average movie viewer can, can pick up and enjoy. Yeah, I, I remember we both had high praises for this movie on the podcast. I, I did come out uh, more negatively than you did because of some of the ways uh, the culmination of the film uh, kind of kind of left us with, and in particular, some, some maybe some weird white saviorism that seemed out of place in the movie. Right. Um, but otherwise, I mean, I'm, I'm a big Wes Anderson fan. I'm I'm different in that, like, I've liked everything I've seen of him, but I haven't seen anywhere near his entire anthology, and, and you yeah. have had a more thorough experience with it. So, there you go. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, so my second movie is kind of a toss-up between two films, and, and one of them ended up getting left off the list. And, and you know, one, one was Tully, which ultimately I did leave off, uh, leave off my, my list, uh, though I do think that it does some really powerful things and is totally worth seeing, especially given its short runtime and its very different subject matter. But I, I did feel compelled to take Black Panther as a movie that is... I, I know pretty much everyone has seen this movie, but it, it's a movie that is so different. And, and I do have several critiques for the film, uh, but what it does, what Ryan Coogler and the cast of characters, which, which includes... Uh, you know, in the villain role, Michael B. Jordan, who, if you go back all the way to our original episode of the podcast, I wrote it as my most underrated actor, I think, or, or whatever the exact wording of the question was that we asked, um, yeah. in Hollywood, uh, you know, as well as as a host of other incredibly compelling female characters. I think that what this movie does as a, as a black empowerment, as a female empowerment movie, uh, teaching Hollywood in some ways that you could have a movie that stars almost exclusively black characters with the you know two exceptions uh one being you know Andy Serkis yeah, yeah one being Martin Freeman who plays a CIA agent who again weirdly pops up in a moment where you could argue that he helps save the day although I have a counter argument for that which there's no reason to revisit um uh, but also and then Andy Serkis who who does the motion capture for Ulysses Claw but yeah, every, every other character in this movie is African or African-American, and that, I think, showing Hollywood that you could have a movie make over, you know, $1.3 billion, starring almost exclusively black characters, starring incredibly powerful female characters, is something that has been a long time coming and was incredibly uh, poignant and powerful, given the existing political climate that we have in America, and... It w I would be remiss if this were not on the list of movies that you really shouldn't have missed in the first half of this year. 
Yep, I also enjoyed it. Um, you know, we had a good conversation about it on our episode where we discussed Black Panther, and also we discussed Annihilation on that same episode. Yep. Um, so it was a good episode. Go back and watch that, that episode. A, that was a good two weeks for Scott. Um, you know, this movie I was a little bit lower down on my list, but um, I I did enjoy it, um, and yeah, it's definitely in the upper echelon of Marvel movies for me. Um, yep. And yeah, look forward to what is coming next for not just uh, T'Challa, but all the other characters as well. Well, we'll see um, if he comes back from being dusted. So, yes, he's going to. Um, oh. But yes, um, will Ant Man okay, and the Wasp so, return? Though that's the question they asked at the end of the movie. That is, that's a lingering question. Yeah. Sure. Um, Last so, one. Mo- moving on now to what is my favorite movie of the year, mm-hmm. um, and by, and I will say by some margin. Um, this is my favorite movie of the year, okay. uh, and it's it has been that way since I saw it a couple months ago. And it's not a movie which we did a full review on um, mm-hmm. on this show, and I did talk about this movie, however, um, briefly after I saw it, and that is the movie Thoroughbreds, directed by Corey Finley. Um, it's his debut feature. It is a dark comedy about two teenage girls who uh, decide to kill one of their uh, stepfathers, uh, the stepfather is played by Paul Sparks, and the two girls are Anya Taylor-Joy and Olivia Cook. Um, and I think it is it. This movie works amazingly well. Uh, it as both a, a dark comedy and as a thriller. Um, it like the these two characters are like they're both sociopaths, but in different <laughs> ways. Like Olivia Cook's character, like you can just tell from the beginning. Like it, it's obvious to everyone from the beginning that she's crazy, um, but. Anya Taylor-Joy, you know, the way that her character, like, unravels over the course of this movie is pretty fascinating to watch because, you know, at the beginning of the movie, she's, like, this character who seems to have it all put together um, and, like, seems to be, like, the antithesis to Olivia Cook's character almost. But Olivia Cook is able to bring out, like, the the dark side of her. And as, uh, you know, the plot unravels, at the end of the movie, you're, you're really left wondering which one of them was more crazy all along. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, it, it's really great to watch, like, the, the puzzle um, put itself together. Um, and, you know, even though this movie, like, you know, it, it is ostensibly like a dark comedy, um, once the actual, like, once we get to the point in the movie where they actually are about to carry out the murder, um, like, it is extremely suspenseful. Um, you know, the suspense rivals, you know, just to, th- just to think of a couple other movies from this year, uh, a Quiet Place and Hereditary, both extremely suspenseful movies. Um, but I think that the, the suspenseful moments in this movie are on par with the suspenseful moments in those movies. Um, and I think that the performances, I mean, it, it's mainly really just about Anya Taylor-Joy and Olivia Cook. Anton Yelchin also has a great um, yeah. supporting role. In, in I his believe it was final his, movie. his yeah. last movie. Yeah. Um, and I think he does a great job as well. But it really is about these two actresses, and they carry the day. And the best thing about this movie is that it is 90 minutes, and it is tight as heck. Like it, like it is perfectly constructed, like to run 90 minutes. It sets everything up perfectly. It executes what it sets up. It follows through on its promises, and then it ends, which is exactly what movies should do. Um, All right, Scott. I, I I have to remind you though that it, so this movie runs ninety two minutes, and you said this movie was two minutes too long. I did say that. Um, <laughs> I'm just kind of mellowed on that a little bit because I think that it does, re- you know, it it does sort of put a a, a punctuation mark on, um, like, 
the relationship between these characters and kind of what I was getting at earlier of, well, which one of them really is more crazy. Um, I, I still don't love those last two minutes. I think that's the only, that, that's the thing that keeps this movie from probably being a perfect 10 for me. Um, but I think that it doesn't sabotage that the movie, the fact that the movie is extremely well constructed um, and like does not run any extra minutes um, mm-hmm. and yeah, a really impressive debut from Corey Finley. Absolutely. Uh, as I'm sure you'll know from a Snapchat that I sent you a couple days ago, I am watching this movie very soon. I have rented it on iTunes. I'm watching it soon. So uh, we, can, we, can, we can talk about it, if not on air, then off air, for sure. All right. I'll, and I will say, like, just to add, um, I think that y- if you read anything about this movie, you're going to see, like, people compare it to, like, American Psycho meets Heather's. Um, That's weird. Which I think is like a not quite right. Um, so I think you should look at it more as like Hitchcock meets David Lynch because you have like right. these really like uh, suspenseful like you have this really suspenseful like Hitchcockian setup of like oh we're gonna murder your stepfather you know kind of almost like a Strangers on a Train type setup. Um, but then you have like this also this like social commentary of like unraveling the dark side of like the upper class and like the middle class and um which is like something you see consistently in david lynch's work um like showing the darkness at the heart of like you know what seems to be like a sparkling exterior so you know just don't be put off by that description of it if that's something that puts you off because i think it's more accurate to say it's like hitchcock and lynch well I, I hadn't read that, and I, I think that that is... I have not gotten an American Psycho vibe uh, from, no, I think from, that's, from that's your description. Yeah. Okay, well, I will I will make my own judgments, and I will get back to you on that yeah. very soon. All right, yeah, my final movie is also a movie that you haven't seen, unless that's changed recently, and that is Love, Simon. I think that, you know, I actually rewatched this movie a little a little while ago after it came out on digital, uh, digital release, and I... Thought that I might like it less the second time, like the sparkle might wear, the shine might wear off a little bit, um, but it didn't. It's a great movie. I think, you know, again, this is a movie we only talked about briefly on the podcast in a kind of what we've been watching section, but, you know, I think Nick Robinson is amazing in this movie. I think that he captures the lead role, the titular role, Simon, so well uh, that he has a great supporting cast of characters that, you know, really capture a lot of emotion uh, in the film in ways that, you know, movies that we've talked about, you know, at length, ad nauseum almost on this podcast, haven't. And I just can't recommend it highly enough. I mean, it, I do think this this film can only do so, mu- do so well because it's blending, you know, maybe new themes, uh, these new themes of a, of a, you know, high school teen coming of age gay comedy drama, like romantic comedy slash drama. Uh, with that's a lot of genres. Well, <laughs> sure, sure. I guess so. I mean, it's a coming of age yeah, romantic I'm comedy. Just kidding, yeah. yeah, yeah. But I think it's blending. It's blending some maybe new themes with from that with some very, very you know stereotypical cliches that you see in almost every coming of age or romantic comedy. And I think that it it does it in a way that. You get the parts of you get the cliches that you like, and you get the new elements that make those cliches interesting in a new way and not old and repetitive or tiresome. And I think it does just such a wonderful job. And I, and I really hope that that people get the chance to see this movie because again, it's not going to come out 
in a best movies list for me. I don't think. Uh, we'll see. Come, but I mean, but this movie is one of my favorites from this year so far. Yeah, and like you with Thoroughbreds, I this is a movie that I still need to catch up with. Um, but your praise only makes me wanna makes me wanna do that, so. Scott. I, I mean, like you love coming of age films so much. I, I think that you really. Love, I know love it, this is, movie. it is a little surprising, I guess, that I haven't seen it at this point. But yep. I, it's kind of, it always just kind of slips my mind. I guess that's the way Shape of Water has been. But you know, I've also now rented Shape of Water, so I'm gonna watch that soon because that's currently like it's a two ninety nine rental on iTunes. I'm like, okay, I got it. This is the cheapest it's ever gonna be for me to see this movie unless it comes out on Netflix. Nice, nice. So, yeah. so I'm gonna pull the trigger. So I gotta watch it the next month. Uh, all right, cool. So I think time to wrap things up. Those are our, you know, the our top three movies from each of us that you shouldn't miss from the first half of the year. So if you did miss them, that's okay. They'll be out sooner or later on digital. American. We missed some of them too. That's true. very good point. Uh, American Animals is still in theaters in some places, so you can always check that out. But you know, Annihilation, Black Panther, Thoroughbreds, uh, and I'm probably. Wait, which one? Which one have I missed? Isle of Dogs. Isle of Dogs. I don't know if Isle of Dogs is out yet on digital, but there are, oh, those three movies that I mentioned are out on digital release already. So you know, if you get the chance, you know, rent them. Yeah, they're worth a couple bucks for uh, for the experience of watching them. All right, so let's wrap things up today with some news. We have quite a few news items, but I think that we can blaze through most of these, Scott. All right, so first up, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles reboot has been confirmed, and the best director that I could possibly imagine for a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movie, Michael Bay, is directing it. Uh, yeah, this is another one where I'm going to start campaigning now for us to not review this on the show. I think you have uh, a decent chance of convincing me not to review this on the show, but we'll see the I don't release even, schedule. I don't want to give my fake movie pass money to the people who made this, made this movie. Like, I don't want to support them in any way. Yeah, I mean... Especially I, because, you know, some things have come out about Michael Bay... Not just is he, is he a terrible filmmaker, but like in the way that he has interacted with some of his female cast members, like is not great. So. Oh, I hadn't actually heard about that, but that I mean that's unfortunate. But I guess I'm not really yeah. surprised. Males in Hollywood are wonderful, so. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle reboot. I I mean they made a movie a couple years ago. I don't even remember. I don't know how long it yeah. was ago now. It was a, a few years ago. It was live. It was, was it live action? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it, it started Megan Fox. Twenty fourteen, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, uh, I'm. I have no emotions about this, and I'd be totally fine if it got canceled. Moving on. Um, Russell Crowe is going to play Roger Ailes in a Showtime miniseries. Uh, presumably about that. Fox. I don't know. I don't know why. Yeah, I think that's like a good bit of casting just from the physical um, appearance. Uh, but I mean, you know, I think Russell Crowe is great. Like he, I. I almost always love his work in, in movies. Um, so yeah, it could be interesting whatever the project ends up being. Yeah, and then and, and continuing on this TV show note, uh, Jeremy Irons is set to join the cast of a Watchmen TV show in a mystery role. I don't know if you saw the, the movie, the live-action Watchmen movie when it came out. I did. Um, and I don't know what you thought of that, but I didn't even know there was a TV show being produced until I saw this headline. Yeah, I think I saw something about it the other day um i'm not a huge fan of the movie you know Zack snyder's kind of a hack for me um <laughs> but i i am a big fan of the graphic novel um on which it is based uh by alan moore so i think that yeah i'm, I'm definitely intrigued that jeremy irons is great so. yeah i mean it's also i know that you're a, you're a damon lindelof fan right because he's the creator uh, of the show remind me what he's created i mean wasn't he one of the creators of 24 Okay, yeah, that's what I was thinking. So, um, yes, I am. 
Let me double check that. That's accurate. Is he is he also behind Homeland? Oh, sorry. He's not 24. Sorry, he's Lost. He was one of the creators of Lost. Oh, okay. Well, I yeah, never yeah. watched Lost. So. Uh, he was one of the creators behind Lost. He wrote Star Trek Into Darkness. Okay. Um, he's done a lot of superhero-related stuff, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, Crossing Jordan. He wrote some episodes <laughs> for, apparently. I don't know. Okay. For some reason, I thought he was on... He was on 24. I don't know. I guess, it's, yeah, I don't guess know. I'm wrong there. Okay. Well, that's mildly embarrassing, but we'll move on past it. Um, we'll forgive you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. All right. So, a Men in, speaking of other spinoffs, we talked about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The Men in Black spinoff is set to star Chris Hemsworth and Kumail Nanjiani in the lead roles. This, so, to be clear, this isn't a reboot. Uh, this is just a spinoff movie. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of the Men in Black movies, but that is a potentially inspired bit of casting that could get me interested. I just like, don't... I mean, I mean, Chris Hemsworth is for, I guess, like the more serious, physically appealing role, and Kumail's the but comedic role. Funny. But Yeah, that, that's true. Chris Hemsworth is also funny. Especially Thor Ragnarok, he was really funny in. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I'm intrigued. I, like you, have no feelings toward the Men in Black franchise. I mean, I like Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith enough, but they never really in- inspired me to go see any of those movies. I mean, I think I've seen one of them because they're always on TV. But yeah. um, they're just not... They're not roles where I'm like, oh, that's awesome. They fit those roles perfectly. I'm really interested in what they do with that. Um, but yeah. this, is, this is intriguing. This is intriguing. Yeah. Also, so I didn't realize this, but the Wonder Woman sequel has a release date now. Um, it is November 1st, 2019, so we're getting the next year, which is exciting. I didn't realize they'd turn that so quickly. Um, and it's... it's uh... Go ahead. I was going to ask you, is Patty Jenkins directing again? Yep, Patty Jenkins uh, with Great. Gal Gadot and Kristen Wiig is the villain. Um, oh, okay. Cheetah is the villain in this movie, and it's titled Wonder Woman 1984, so we're not quite getting back to the present times, uh, which, uh, isn't, which isn't surprising given the state of like Justice League, and I don't know if you follow yeah. the DCEU at all, but um, yeah, so yeah, there you have it. I'm excited it's coming next year. I didn't expect it to. So, all right, and then another... Uh, again, we're like really getting sequels, spinoffs, and reboots here. We're hitting them hard this week. So for top the Top Gun sequel, which is called Top Gun Maverick, uh, Miles Teller is cast as Goose's son in the movie, which I'm here for because Miles Teller is one of the best young actors out there. I completely agree, and I think I could totally see him in a Top Gun style movie. Yeah, um, I think that he he has going for him a lot of what. Tom Cruise and Val Kilmer and Anthony Edwards and all these people had going for them when the original came out in the 80s. Yeah, I agree. I think that he's a great casting choice. In fact, I don't even know why they were considering other people. Uh, I mean, like you, in terms of like child male actors, or not, I shouldn't say child because these guys are a little bit older than that now, but like young male yeah. actors, you have, to me, you have Miles Teller, you have Ansel Elgore, and you have um, Timothy Chalamet. Like those are the big three right now. Um, yeah, and Ansel Elgore isn't even that good, so. Yeah, I mean that's true. I mean he had a big hit with Baby Driver, I guess. But um, yeah. fair enough. So maybe so so maybe just Miles Teller and Timothy Chalamet. And speaking of it, the latter is absolutely crushing it right now. So yeah, see absolutely. if he can keep it up. All right. So going back briefly to TV shows and Showtime as well. There's a this came out of E3, I think, or right before it. But there's a Halo live action Showtime series confirmed uh, to be produced in the next uh, in the coming years. I guess I have no idea when it's going to release. But they announced that, and that is confirmed to be happening with Showtime. So Master Chief is ever, going to Showtime. I don't even think I've ever played Halo, so I can't oh, say yeah. that I'm excited about this. But. Yeah, I mean... The oh, music is cool. That's true. I mean, the the scores are amazing from those games. 
and uh, the game, exactly, yeah. And the and the games themselves, I mean, they're some of the most iconic for our generation. It just depends on whether or not you had an Xbox um, sure. growing up. Which, which I did not. Yeah, and uh, I have also not generally had an Xbox. I haven't played all the games. I've only played a few of them, um, thanks to friends. Anyway, uh, moving on past that, Indiana Jones 5, which is going through quite a tumultuous uh, cycle at this point, I think. It, they got rid of their old writer, whose name has already escaped me, and they've now replaced him or her, I don't remember who it was, with Solo's John Kasdan, uh, obviously very familiar with jo- uh, with George Lucas-related franchises from Star Wars. He wrote Solo, as I just mentioned. Uh, but he's now the one writing Indiana, the fifth Indiana Jones movie. Because there were actually were questions about that this movie would just get altogether canceled after Solo bombed. Um, Did but- his father not write the like one of the uh, original Indiana Jones movies? Maybe uh, I'm making that up, but... I'm not sure. Maybe. I know um, that he was involved with, like he he uh, he he wrote some of the original Star Wars movies. Like he wrote Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, Lawrence Lawrence, Lawrence Kasdan's his father, yeah. right? Um, I guess he. You know, I think he did write Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay. Well then, yeah. There you go. So maybe that makes sense then. But yeah. yeah uh, so to your point, he co-wrote. Uh, John Kasdan co-wrote Solo with his father, um, who and his father also wrote uh, The Force Awakens. By the way, I don't know if you knew that, but yeah, I did. I did. Yeah, he wrote The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, and then also uh, flexed his muscles again and wrote Force Awakens and Solo uh, with his son. But yeah, John Kasdan is writing the fifth the fifth Indiana Jones movie right now. Hopefully, it survives. Um, this. I mean, it can't be worse than the last one. <laughs> Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with that. I don't know how it could be worse than the last one. Uh, for a while, people... I know, I mean, we've talked about this. I think we've talked about this before on the podcast or this fifth Indiana Jones movie. But for a while, it was rumored it would just be an Indiana Jones reboot with, like... And I think the logical choice would be, like, Chris Pratt to be Indiana Jones. But that's not happening yet. We'll see. We'll see how they handle it. Ford's almost 80 years old at this point. Well, yeah. So, I mean, so people are talking about, like, if they really want to revive this franchise, they're going to have him, like, hand it off. And they certainly cannot hand it off to Shia LaBeouf. So, it, it's gonna he's gonna it's gonna be someone he meets presumably in the film, or he's gonna have yeah, another yeah. illegitimate child with some other woman from one of the movies. <laughs> but you know, whatever. Uh, we'll see how it goes. I hope it makes it. I, I have a even even though Crystal Skull is really not a good movie, I do have a soft spot uh, for the Indiana Jones franchise, and I and I hope for it. Sure. I hope this movie is good, and I hope it happens. For sure. All right, cool. Uh, Meryl Streep and Emma Stone are in talks for Greta Gerwig's next film and that is Little Women I know that this must I mean I don't know how much emotion you have for Meryl Streep but I know you like Emma Stone and Saoirse Ronan I believe also in the mix um, once again in Greta Gerwig film um, yeah I saw this news like uh, earlier this week or last week and I'm very excited um, I think this is an awesome cast I think uh, Greta Gerwig obviously up and coming director and I think this could be really interesting yeah, I think the reason I didn't mention Saoirse Ronan is I, th- I thought she was already confirmed to be in this movie, but I could be wrong. Okay, well, I just um, saw it this week, or th- whenever it came out, all three of those names were paired together. Oh, so. well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe I'm thinking of a different movie then. I, I could yeah. totally be wrong. I have no idea. Okay, another spinoff movie. Fast and Furious has a spinoff, which, I mean, I don't follow this franchise at all. I don't know if you do either. Um, but there's a spinoff with The Rock being the lead role instead of Vin Diesel, because he was in one or two of them. I don't know. I literally haven't seen any of these movies mm-hmm. since, like, fast too fast too furious um but there's a spinoff and the cast has just added vanessa kirby and then 
Idris Elba is going to be the villain in it, which is pretty cool. I like Idris Elba. Yeah. I mean, I've seen um, several of the more recent ones. I'm not, like, super invested in it, but I'll probably see it. Yeah, I mean, because of the nature of this franchise, I might be in a position that you were in this past week with watching Jurassic World, and I'll probably bite the bullet and watch whatever this movie is, because it's but probably... These movies, I will say, these movies are definitely of higher quality than Jurassic, now, than I, Jurassic World movies, yeah. I, be- I believe that. I mean, like I said, yeah. I, ha- I haven't seen any of them since Too Fast, Too Furious, because Tokyo Drift came after that. I was like, this seems completely unrelated to the last two yeah. movies. I'm not going to see this. And then I just fell off and never saw any other ones. Um, yeah. But yeah, maybe I'll fire fire the fire the engine up, to, to use a pun there, and, and see this spinoff. And maybe catch up with the other movies. But anyway, moving past that, this this is really not something that we have to discuss. But Nicolas Cage is voicing one of the Spider Men in uh in, in Into the Spider Verse, which is an animated Spider Man movie coming out later this year. He's voicing Spider Man Noir. So. Yeah, um, he's getting really good buzz right now for this crazy looking movie called Mandy. So yeah, I saw he's having that. a comeback. Yeah, you know, he probably is unfairly maligned, but he's really yeah, fun he to make fun is. of. But he's really fun to make fun of. <laughs> so. Oh yes, yes, definitely. Uh, speaking of things that are uh, fun to make fun of, just kidding, this is not true at all, this is a terrible segue, uh, the, the Child's Play reboot, which is the Chucky movies. I mean, Chuck, Chucky's pretty fun to make fun of. Are you kidding? I'm terrified of that thing. <laughs> uh, but the, apparently there's a reboot happening, uh, I, I, I assume after the success of It last year, that's why this reboot is happening. Ah, uh, uh, yes. But we'll see, we'll see if and when that comes to fruition, and what, what that's like, if it does. Yeah. All right, final piece of news out of the A24 department, so fire the engines up for you here. Uh, Sterling K. Brown and Trent Reznor have joined the cast of uh, A24's musical called Waves. So Trent Reznor is actually going to be in the cast. Uh, sorry, maybe that's not the right wording there. I think I think they were said to have joined the film. I think it's technically the okay. wording. Uh, it, yeah, you're right, it doesn't necessarily make sense for Trent Reznor to be in the cast. but uh, I mean, you know, you never know, but yeah. He's probably more in the musical department, I would say. For sure. I mean, I, what do I know? I don't know anything. So, A24 is your department. I just forward everything with A24 on it to you. So, yeah. All right, cool. I think, um, I don't know if you have anything else to add to our news, but that's all I've got. Uh, yeah, I think that's all I've got, too. Cool. Well, that should do it, then, for episode 14 of Some Like a Scott. Do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today? Uh, so, I have been updating our Twitter account a lot more recently. Yep. Um, and, you know, with information about the show and other movie news and stuff. So if you haven't been following us, please follow along at, at movie, uh, at, I'm sorry, at media plug pods. Yep. Um, yep. That's right. That's you, can, you, can, you can also just search some like it's Scott and it should pop up. Yeah. Uh, Cause that is the name of the page, but the, the handle is at media plug pods. Yeah. But that would be the primary place for like updates on the show and everything. So definitely follow along. Absolutely. Follow along there. Yeah. Yeah, no. That, thank you for thank you for mentioning that. I was going I was going to plug it myself, but you did it for me, which is perfect because uh, you should take credit because it's largely been uh, your efforts to to revive the Twitter page that I started back in February and uh, have not done a good job updating. But now we're, we're we're fully fully alive again over on the Twitter sphere. Yeah. All right. But speaking of which, uh, where can people find you on Twitter, Scott? Scarvy Dent. Scarvy Dent at Scarvy Dent. All right, cool. And I can be found at at s shelton twenty thirteen. Uh, as Scott mentioned, though, more important than our personal Twitter pages is to us is the Some Like It Scott Twitter page. So please do do check that out. Uh, big thanks to, to Scott for making that way more active than it has been. And that again, that's at Media Plug Pods over on Twitter. 
Uh, we'd love it even more, though, if you checked us out over on our podcast Patreon page, which is a similar kind of link. It's www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. There are a whole bunch of different tiers over there, and we'd appreciate it so much, even if you only contributed to us at the $1 level. So go over there, again, www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods, and check out the different tiers. Pick the one that's right for you and help support this podcast if you can. If you choose not to, however, that's totally fine. Uh, you can still find us on Apple Podcasts, where we'd also appreciate it if you rated and reviewed us, as well as subscribed and shared, so that we can continue to reach a broader audience with what we're doing here. All right, I think I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you taking the time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. We'll be back in two weeks with two new movies. That's eighth grade, and then Mamma Mia, here we go again. We hope you'll join us again <laughs> then to hear what we have to say. But until then... Uh, We hope you have a wonderful day. For Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening.